0: My name is Jenny.
1: My name is Ted.
0: My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Animorphology. Animorphology.
2: The invasion. The visitor. The encounter. The message. The predator. The capture. The stranger. The end. Am- the secret. The android. The forgot. The reaction, the chain. The unknown. The escape. The underground. The decision. The slow departure. The, the slow discovery. The proposed threat. The mutation. conspiracy, the, the separation. The deception. Suspicious. The extreme sacrifice. The diversion. The beginning.
3: My name is Claire. Yay. Hurrah.
1: Welcome back, Claire.
2: We're so happy to have you back for another Intense Cassie
1: book.
3: I'm really happy to be back for another Intense Cassie book. This is fun. It's very nice to have you.
1: What has it been like for you with the Animorphs since you last came on the show?
3: Well, so I don't know if you remember, but last time I was on the show, before I came on the show, I read all of the Animorphs books basically up until that point, and I listened to all of the podcast episodes. I cannot say I have done as well this time. I have not really read. <laughs> that's
2: any all right, that was a really high book. bar. Yeah, that's fine. Not <laughs> a requirement.
3: Then, uh, I did read the Andalite Chronicles right after I was on last time but i have been listening to the podcast regularly i'm all caught up on the podcast nice and i did read 49 and 50 in preparation for this podcast. oh nice okay, okay.
1: i was gonna say like being a listener what have you thought of the way the series has gone or like, what are your thoughts on like the end game, the last few episodes, and then book forty nine coming into fifty?
3: I have found it much more exciting. I, I have to say, I was hmm. kind of, I, I had to do a little bit of catching up in preparation for this recording session because I was like a little bit tapped out at some point listening to all of the random nonsense that was happening in the middle. Late thirties,
2: early forties gets rough,
3: yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. As soon as things started to go down, and especially, well, this isn't really an answer to your question, Ted, but reading 49, I was very excited about, like, finally, they're telling the parents, this is really interesting and exciting. Like, I guess I had been kind of waiting for that for a while. And it seems like the stakes kind of pick back up again, in a way.
2: What did you think of this one?
3: (sighs) The ending was extremely abrupt.
2: (laughs) So common among young I, I found the
3: book enjoyable and interesting to read overall. Definitely you no know, nineteen.
2: Oh no!
3: But I think there are going to be a lot of really interesting things to discuss. So I'm I'm really happy that you all had me back on because that's fun. I think that the big question, obviously, there's going to be a lot of stuff for us to discuss about disability and the way the book treats mm-hmm. that. And I think that that has some resonance with things that came up when we talked about nineteen. I think there's also a lot of really interesting stuff about paternalism. I think that's kind of the main thing in this book.
2: Ooh, yeah.
3: And I think that I'm super interested to talk about because I still haven't figured out all of what I think about what was happening. And I think the book Mm -hmm. did actually explore it like in a lot of different layers and, and in interesting ways.
0: Yeah. That's such a good point. Um, I felt the same way in my notes. I have a section on being patronizing But paternalism (laughs) is actually a much better way to say that because of all the different ways in which that comes up. I thought it was a really interesting book. And one thing that I particularly enjoyed about it was seeing a character's central dilemma from another character's perspective. So the Mm -hmm. Jake books Mm -hmm. have often been about leadership. What does that mean? What does it look like? What is Jake's leadership style? And how is he dealing with being a leader? and this was basically a Jake book in a lot of ways and it was about leadership but from Cassie's perspective instead of from Jake's and i thought that was just a really interesting way for them to do to do this point of view it did mean that some of Cassie's internalized issues were kind of only lightly touched upon mm. in favor of other discussions, but I'm really excited to talk about some of the ways in which they treat the, um, the disabled kids and kind of how that whole part works and excited to see how this leads into the end game.
1: Jenny? Yeah,
2: that's such a good point, Gray. The, this is the second book in a row where I'm like, why wasn't this a Jake book? But of course they can't all be Jake books. I liked parts of this book. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. This is one of the shifts in the series that I hated the most as a kid. The recruiting recruiting new animorphs. Hmm. And at this point it feels like the cast of characters has grown so large that the books aren't doing them justice. Mm -hmm. I felt like a lot of parts of this book were inadequate. Some of them seemed a little poorly written, some of it they just didn't have space to get into stuff. So it didn't feel tight and compelling in the way that like 45 did. Like 45, huge shift in the series. That's when Marco tells his dad, like, I didn't like that move as a kid, but I loved the book reading it now. This one didn't love the book, didn't feel like it earned most of the things that happened, but there was still a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Ted?
1: I really like this book. I found the end very frustrating rereading it. I don't know. I really like the position Cassie is put in here, both with her relationship with her parents and her relationship with Jake. There's a lot of really good emotional stuff that I really, really like in this book. I think I agree with you, Jenny, that some of the writing was inadequate in ways that has become more common in the in the second half of the yeah, series. Yeah, I mean,
2: ghostwriters make sense.
1: But yeah, I think we should just get into it.
2: Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, here is a summary. So at the beginning, you see Cassie uh, in some sort of evacuation maneuver from the new hork camp in the mountains. And she's like having trouble morphing. She's getting distracted by thoughts of her parents and finally manages to get out. And uh, this whole evacuation thing is going very badly. And a Horkbajir shows up and is like, you're all dead. And it turns out it's Toby and it was just a practice drill. Yay. But basically, the camp is very unprepared for Yurk attack. And Jake doesn't seem to be taking the leadership stance that he needs to to get everyone into shape for this. There's also trouble with the parents. Cassie's parents are worried about, you know, living conditions for the hork in ways that would be relevant if the danger were less dire. So there's some conflict about that. And Rachel's mom just doesn't want to stay in the camp, like wants to leave, wants to contact authorities, isn't really listening to the Animorphs. It's like, why would I listen to children? So Cassie's big concern is that Jake isn't stepping up to the plate and she tries to talk him into taking a more active leadership role. And he sort of refuses that call. And so Cassie organizes a meeting of everyone in the camp, tells them Jake organized it, but uh, springs it on Jake by surprise and is like, we need you to lead. And there's sort of a come to your senses conversation with the parents. Ava manages to talk to Naomi, Rachel's mom, a little bit. and, And Jake manages to step up to the plate a little bit. Like his heart doesn't seem to be fully in it, but he's sort of taken back on the leadership role. So then the anamorphs get together and are like, okay, we need to do something to shore up our resources. We have the blue box, the Escafil device. We can create more anamorphs. We can have a bigger army. Right now we're really vulnerable because there are only the six of us. There are all these people we're protecting. And they talk about giving the morphing power to their parents. There are various reasons they don't want to give it to any of the parents, They talk about giving it to the hork They're like, the hork don't need to morph. They're already formidable fighters. And also some other condescending stuff we'll talk about. They decide they need to find a group of people who definitely aren't controllers because they don't have time to wait three days. I don't know why suddenly they don't have time, but they don't have time to wait three days to find out if the people they're giving the power to are controllers. So they decide that the people the Yerks are least likely to infest are people whose bodies are by, you know... American societal standards, in some way disabled. And they decide to go to a residential center for children and teenagers with physical disabilities. And Cassie suggests this and then is like, wait, no, that's a terrible idea. We can't do that to these people. And they decide to do it anyway. Jake, Cassie, and Marco go to this center They have some adventures on the way because they take a really stupid route getting there. We're going to talk about it. It doesn't really make any sense. But finally, they get to this center and they are in disguise as performers because they met up with a random performing group of high schoolers who were going into this center coincidentally. So they go and try to talk to these teenagers. The teenagers don't want to talk to them. The teenagers think they're being condescending and it's true. So finally, they manage to talk to this girl named Colette, who seems more sympathetic. And she points them towards this guy, James, who is uh, sort of an unofficial leader among the teens in this ward. And they approach James and tell him about the Yerks. He's like, yeah, funny joke to play on the disabled Kids. And Jake is like, no, really, and morphs in front of him and convinces him and he resists the idea of putting his fellow residents at risk like this. They ask him to use his influence to like recruit others. And he's like, no. And they're like, well, the yerks, you know, don't like people with disabilities. They'll probably kill you all if they take over. And finally, James is like, yes, fine. But I get to choose who and they're going to answer to me. So he chooses three more people and they get the morphing power. And Marco smuggles in a pigeon for them to morph. And it turns out, like we'll also definitely get into this more, but... Three of them, when they demorph, still have the disabilities they had before. Uh, but James was in a car accident when he was little, and morphing gets rid of his disabilities. And so he's suddenly this, like, huge, strong, tall person. So they take them all to the gardens and get them some morphs. And then they do the same thing with a few other groups of the residents at this center. And over, like, a few days, till they have, like, 20-something new anamorphs. And they're all answering to James... And James has a couple of lieutenants who, by a huge coincidence, which I'm sure is just based on their psychology and not on ableism, are the other two people who, uh, whose disabilities are gone when they demorph. So after this, they've kind of, I guess, gotten all the people they wanted to from this center. And so they go to a home for the blind, school for the blind, something like that nearby and are planning to recruit people from there. So the anamorphs are all in this ward. Rachel is telling this this one girl what's going on and giving her the morphing power. And Cassie feels like they're being watched. And then a bunch of hork burst in. Tom is there, uh, starts yelling at Jake about what he did. Like, ha- They have all of the animorphs at like Dracon point. And Cassie's in fly morphs, so she's the one who's able to get away. And uh, Tom takes the blue box and is like, okay, Jake, we're going to take you to Visser 1. So Cassie escapes, goes for James and the new Animorphs, and uh, gets them all to come and fight in this battle to free Jake and the others from Tom. And the other animorphs are all really frightened. It's their first battle, but they all have battle morphs that they got at the gardens. And so they all morph and face off against the Yerks just as Visser 1 arrives. There's like a big battle. The animorphs get the blue box back. Visser 1 morphs, uh, almost kills Jake. Jake is actually saved because one of the Horpagir controllers presumably saves him. And the animorphs are like, oh, the resistance is still alive. But like, basically, this really rough battle going on. Tom manages to grab the blue box and runs away and Jake chases after him in Tiger Morph and Cassie chases after him in Wolf Morph. Tom goes into some woods and Jake faces off against him and Tom has a Dracon beam and like shoots Jake, but Jake is still going after him and he's about to pounce and Cassie grabs Jake's back leg and keeps him from pouncing. And Tom runs off with the box and uh, Cassie has this feeling that like, this is, absolutely the right thing to do she has to keep jake from killing tom and for some reason she really thinks it's right that he goes off of the box which i'm sure we will also talk about and the book ends with the anamorphs are all back in the camp sorry the original the original anamorphs are all back in the hercadier camp no one knows what happened with tom except for jake and cassie and he just like isn't speaking to her and finally is like why why would you do this? Like this is such a betrayal, basically, and she is like I was trying to save you and can't really give a good explanation, but she still thinks that it was the right thing to do. So yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much the action in the book. There's like a lot other of other stuff in there. Yeah, that I yeah. Think, yeah. Uh... You did a
1: pretty good job of not editorializing too much. <laughs> I have and, I have uh... one I have one point of order, which is yeah. for the purposes of this podcast, how do we want to distinguish the animorphs meaning the six characters we know and love from the new animorphs? It was confusing at the end. You're like yeah. the animorphs, so they get a like collective name later, and I don't think it's much of a spoiler. Should we just no, use I that? I
2: already that. know I was- it. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I was looking it up in future books. It's n- they never make a big deal of like we're naming you. They just yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So it's okay, so. the
1: auxiliary animorphs. Are what they are referred to so we can call them the auxiliary anamorphs the new anamorphs the auxiliary yeah I think
2: if we just say anamorphs let's assume we're talking about the original ones it is
0: such a indication of how the anamorphs are written and the animorph fandom has come together that the name of this extra group is not like new anamorphs or like baby anamorphs it's auxiliary anamorphs <laughs> like, that is such an unnecessary you know 10 point word for you to use in this situation and I <laughs> Really
1: love it. <laughs> oh, so great! I want to know how did you find out what they're called?
0: I'm, it was it was totally my fault, but I wanted to see if the animorphs were described or mentioned on um, Disability and Kidlet, which is a blog mm, that I follow. Mm-hmm. Oh
4: yeah! Oh yeah!
0: Yeah, and they actually aren't. There's no okay. real animorphs entry, which I'm like. We need to fix that. Like, why is there not Definitely. an extended series? I'm glad you didn't series? find it. I think it
2: would have had spoilers.
0: But as I was looking for that, one of the... I, I didn't read any of the other things. Like, there's a Tumblr post I want you guys to look at and tell me if I can read because it's about disability and animorphs. I but think I, was I like, read it. I can't open that because if I open that, I'm going to know things. Yeah. But I, really, so I was hoping that. there would be something that was like, you know, from people who are in that corner of of kids lit mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. would be talking about this series and there wasn't anything but one of the titles on the google search was auxiliary animorphs and i was like i i know exactly what they're talking about now so okay <laughs> i yeah. think
1: there's like a book or a dissertation to be written about it oh yeah, i don't definitely. know if it exists yet but
0: i think we should at least suggest like i want to write to disability and kids lit and be like oh yeah please can we can we ta- please, please can we talk us. about this series the series as a whole just can we please talk
2: <laughs> Please read these Please. Uh, 62 yeah. books and uh, write about it. Yeah, I I also looked up some stuff. I probably found the Tumblr post you looked at, Gray. Because, I mean, much as I want to not steal all of this person's ideas, this is the Jake formerly known as Prince, who has a lot of very thoughtful posts on Tumblr about Animorphs in oh, general. Oh, yeah. Their,
1: their blog is great.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things where, like, I feel like if we read it, we would just end up parroting all of it on the podcast, and I don't want to do that. But, like, in this in particular, where I don't feel like I'm, I'm an expert in uh, disability theory, activism, all that stuff. And it seems like they also are not but also seem pretty well versed in it. So I wanted to wanted to do some research there. So I definitely have some thoughts cribbed from that.
0: Yeah, let's start with that. Because that seems like the big one of the bigger things that we need to talk about.
2: Yeah, it was a really, really big part of this book. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I want to hear more about people's reactions reading it. Because like, I wasn't actually sure if the ableism stuff would be so problematic, it would it would turn you off as a new reader. Cause like when I read it as a kid, I think it mostly went over my head and I felt like, Oh, this is a sympathetic and nuanced portrayal of kids with disabilities. And I probably wasn't aware of the problematic parts of it. And I was nervous rereading it, but I still, I really love James as a character. And I feel like certainly more so than the stuff with Lauren in the last book. And I think more so than almost any other book they're really trying to oh, yeah. to deal with it in a nuanced way. And so it's a lot harder for me to, I mean, I, th- I still think we should talk about the stuff where it falls down, but like, I was worried about it, and I was more impressed with how the issue was handled.
3: Yeah, here. I I felt similarly. I I felt like it did seem like they were trying really hard, and I also felt like I was pretty impressed with the quick characterization of this new group of kids and how much I liked them. Not just James, but I I really felt like some of the other kids like
0: were very.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, as Colette well. and Timmy jump out. What did you think, Gray? Did you...
0: I, I felt similarly. Um, I, was, I was super worried. We got to the... There's one chapter where they're like, what is the one sort of person the Yerks won't touch? Who do we know for sure isn't one of them? <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be just ableist. As well. like, I was so worried. <laughs> I was worried also. When I
4: got You're to not that wrong. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Especially after the last book when we talked about, it, and I was like, oh, I just so worried. And it was actually a lot more nuanced than I was giving the series credit for. Um uh, And I think more nuanced than the series has been so far because they they speak very well of the kids with disabilities. I mean, these children are represented as individuals and as really complex characters even though we don't get a lot of them we still mm-hmm. know that like timothy loves musical theater like that's just such a great yes. little thing to throw in there I as him. a character
1: and in particular the like the bit he has a speech impediment mm-hmm. the animorphs are all focused on the physical disabilities and kind of like a will they be cured way which is which mm-hmm. is problematic and we can talk about it more but like i really liked the sort of surprise of timmy being able to verbally communicate in thought speak and being like oh my god you don't know what it's like to be a musical theater nerd who has a speech impediment yeah it's like it's such a good little detail of characterization
0: it's really great and and the way he phrases it for timmy is he says do you you want to know what hell on earth is having a large vocabulary an encyclopedic knowledge of musical theater and a speech impediment i was like I love you so much. Like, what a great way. And he because he gets thought speak. And now he can he can express himself. And it is adorable.
1: I love... This is also a great Audie's moment. When James is talking to Pedro. Is that his roommate's name? Mm-hmm. Or his friend's name? He's like talking to Pedro. And he's like, so I'm going to put on the radio. You know, like, you want to listen to rock? No response. And he's like, <laughs> you want to listen to country western? And then uh, Pedro blinks. And that's how they are used to communicating. And then... He's like, fine, one of these days I'm going to have to get you to listen to Blink-182. <laughs> I was like, I love this so He's much. He's so cute. <laughs> James is very cool. Yeah, he has terrible thing where, taste like... in rock music. <laughs> it's so appropriate. But like James
2: and Pedro have very specific musical tastes. It's good yeah. that they aren't like, they're <clears throat> characterized by things that aren't just their disabilities. Yeah, exactly and,
0: exactly. and that was especially true in part because the auxiliaries have a number of different disabilities. They do go to a school for the blind, but in the wherever
2: they are in this um, kind it's of... It's called a rehab center at some point, but it seems to be like a permanent residential center for them. So I don't know. Yeah,
0: it's very unclear. But in the rehab center, there are, you know, I think Timmy has cerebral palsy. There are kids who are physically disabled. They have are quadriplegics. James was hit by a car and lost the use of his legs. So there's a number of different disabilities that are kind of baked into the premise of being in this, Mm-hmm. physical rehab center and they treat those different disabilities with more nuance than i had expected. So James for example, who is an amazing character and i love him very much, but he is physically very strong despite being mm-hmm. in a wheelchair. Like he takes out Jake by Yes, i like,
2: loved that. flipping him over the wheel. Like it's an amazing scene. And it was but, also something that the Jake formerly known as Prince points out is it's at a moment when Jake is trying to physically direct and he's grabbing James's arm to keep him yeah. from leaving the room because he wants to keep explaining. I think actually the, blo- the Tumblr post says like Jake grabbed his chair, which Marco grabs his chair later. But the post talked about like long history of like abled people taking control of the yeah. bodies of people people with disabilities, like oh, moving yeah. their chairs across the street yeah. or
0: like, yeah. you
1: know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: That comes up a bunch because one of the concerns that Cassie has very reasonably and that axe has for less reasonable reasons <laughs> is what happens to these kids in a battle if they have to demorph and cassie's concern is that they will be helpless in the middle of a battle and of course you know they're they're gonna remorph
2: yeah the anamorphs are not you know good at battle yeah, not a morph. I mean,
0: it kind of makes sense a little bit but because of what we see in the battle but there is a sense where the animorphs are having to take physical control over these other kids. For example, getting the morphs, the animorphs Mm -hmm. are are physically carrying the auxiliaries into wild animal cages somehow, I don't understand, Mm -hmm. to acquire new morphs. And so there is a little bit of that where I was like, I'm just not sure that you had a sensitivity reader for this, but I think you did (laughs) as well as you could with this topic in the time period it was in. And I appreciated the complexity and nuance that the writer brought to these characters.
1: I also really appreciated the moment with Colette. She's new to the ward and is basically spinning this story about how she's not uh, paraplegic. She broke her leg in a skiing accident and she's going to be out of here anytime. And the other kids know that she's lying because they can like read her chart, but they're basically like, okay with her telling tales. (laughs) And I like it as an example of she gets to be kind of like a bad teen who's like lying to all of her friends and everyone else. I mean, like they're pretty quick to forgive her and stuff, but I like the sort of mm-hmm. it's nice to have some unsympathetic traits highlighted as well.
2: Yeah, right. They don't all have to be perfect on a pedestal, people. Which yeah. is right. like teenagers uh, are assholes, yeah. and, and like James go.
1: is basically perfect. <laughs> he's like <laughs> he's like yeah, kind
2: of true.
3: There is some pedestaling. I mean, there's yeah, definitely yeah. the mm-hmm. the dichotomy of like calling them helpless quite a bit in problematic ways. Mm-hmm. And as Jenny was saying, I also had the reaction of like, the main animorphs are small human children. They are also helpless. <laughs> yeah. It's not like there's this dichotomy of helpless versus not helpless, right? It's just like,
0: yeah, yeah what yeah.
3: do you need to, to okay. get done what you need to get done? And then on the other hand, they are called, I mean, these, these kids' auxiliaries are called extraordinary compared to the ordinary Mm. anamorphs
1: yeah that that just reminds me one of the bits the not so good bits is the like disability superpower trope where they're like oh the disabled kids are so much better at controlling the morphs because their disabilities have meant that their wills have become extra strong i actually
3: thought that was interesting and i i see why it is problematic but I don't think it's necessarily unrealistic. Like, these kids might have had. It was a little weird to have, as,
2: like, all of them. Sure. Like, I'm sure they all have different I mean, relationships th- with their bodies. It is true that later
1: and... Kelly turns into a walrus instead of a bird, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> I, but I guess I was thinking like, that
3: it's quite possible that these kids, unlike the main anamorphs, have had therapy and, like, have mm. learned various cognitive strategies and.
2: Mindfulness strategies.
1: Ooh, I really like that take.
2: I think I would have liked it if like one of them had had that and was like, "Oh, I don't have a problem with it because of this specific therapy that I had." Mm-hmm. I think that would have been a yeah. That's but right. I like that as an interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Right, right.
1: As with most of this, it's really like I think the reason why I don't want to write it off, right, is because mm. unlike the last book where Lauren stands in for all disabled people in the way that the tropes are played here, you get this, you get a diverse cast. And so I think the representation kind of diffuses like cliches about groups, right? Like yeah, you have yeah. a bunch of different kids who are allowed to be different and have personalities and stuff. And that makes it harder to come away from the story being like, well, this is what they think about all disabled people. Right. So yeah. like having multiple, like you're what you're saying, Jenny, having multiple characters react differently to the same situation provides that kind of diversity. Yeah. And so like, yeah. that's kind of all you really need to do. And then you can...
3: I, I appreciated that as well. Although I think that there is another way perhaps beyond the sort of like, oh, they all have great will and cognitive abilities and they're morphs, that they are kind of perhaps represented all the same. Um, and I would like to talk about this because I might be wrong in the way I was interpreting this. But I think there wasn't, there at least wasn't very much attention given toward their attitudes towards their own disabilities and whether they thought of them as something that they would want to quote unquote cure or something like that. And I think if anything, it was presented a bit as all of them would prefer to be cured like James is cured and they felt like oh he's the lucky
2: one yes they they even said that yeah
1: yeah that's a really good point I think it's like I don't know if this is the same or different but it jumped out to me with maybe it was with Colette's story or something because they're going to this rehab center all of the kids have somewhat of the same backstory which is like their families have abandoned them right and so like like Axe gets into this too like oh well Why are humans, you know, locking up all the disabled kids in a hospital floor and not being taken care of? And like that is a kind of representation that they really fall down on because Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people with disabilities have very loving families who take care of them. And like this, you know, putting them all in this kind of like, oh, everyone with everyone who's in a wheelchair must be someone who's unloved and alone. And like in this community of outcasts, like they never really they never really question that piece of it.
2: Yeah, that was one of the things that I had like had a big problem with. I was like, is this I mean, I I was alive in the 90s. This is at this point the 2000s. Like maybe I just didn't know like was this a big thing where like there were just like all of the the kids with disabilities were abandoned by their parents like that feels really not I'm sure it happens like lots of terrible things happen like that but like it didn't seem like they maybe did their research on that like they just wanted to and it was part of this larger thing where they're portraying the kids with disabilities as objects of pity like their disabilities are this unquestioned big negative thing in their life it made everyone reject them human society is terrible for rejecting them like it does say like you know that's that's the wrong approach but there isn't this idea of okay well maybe you can have a good life with this like james who is incredibly strong and smart and a good leader they're like yeah his he, from here he's just gonna go to a nursing home because he can't do anything else like why why can't he like go to college and, like, get a job like disabled people do that
1: well Yes. Right. So I think there's the, the narrow view does reduce them to stereotypes, but like the reality of living with disabilities can be pretty grim. Right. Yeah, so no, definitely. Yeah. But like it's actually... like a very
2: extreme version of that, that wasn't portraying like a, the broad spectrum of like society is crappy to people with disabilities, but like they aren't all in residential homes. Right.
3: I, you know, I actually thought there was one thing I noticed that was perhaps a counterpoint to what I was saying about how they all have this really negative feeling about their disabilities and would prefer that that they not have those disabilities. I guess I was really worried in seeing that, that we'd have at least one kid who would choose to become a Nothlet by the end of the book. Mm. Maybe that wouldn't be problematic, but I, I was worried about it because of how it would reinforce what I'm saying about like all of these kids yeah. are rejecting their, their own bodies and, and, you know, would rather have another existence and, and would, would give that up. Yeah.
1: And even, right, James even says, like, even two hours is enough. Like, he's he's imagining, it's like, yeah, it's for so Pedro great. Yeah,
2: in particular. Yeah. Right,
1: right, 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 right.
2: Yeah, and Ted, you were talking about how it's great that we get this um, breadth of, of kids with disabilities represented. Which is, is true, but it's also like the way this is structured, none of those kids are going to get any of the focus that like the original Animorphs have gotten over the last like 49 books. The series still very, very much, I mean, unavoidably at this point, but like still very much has like centralized, prioritized these, you know, six kids who don't have physical disabilities. They aren't putting any of these characters in a central role. And that sidelining of the the characters with disabilities. Like, at, at this point, I don't think they really have a choice, but, like, it is... Yeah, I was going to say. That. Yeah, notable.
1: Just on that point, it's hard to avoid the, like, this is a very special episode of the Animorphs where they deal with yeah. kids with disabilities. And then, like, yeah. obviously the Auxiliaries continue to be characters, but it'll be interesting to but see... there aren't that many books left. Right, and it'll be are, interesting like, to see Phenomenon. if yeah. these themes mm-hmm. continue forward or if they just kind of close the book and say, now they're Animorphs. And, like, they don't think about it.
2: Yeah. So the other thing that I had, I mean, the thing that I had a major problem with, like I was like, okay, there are some things here that aren't great, but like mostly they're doing a good job. Like they're clearly trying very hard. And then they got to the part where there are three kids whose disabilities were, you know, gotten rid of by morphing and demorphing. And then they were the three who were in charge. That was a horrifying level of ableism. Like that was the one point where I'm like, this is just indefensible. Like the rest of the stuff, like Okay, so some of their disabilities are like quote unquote cured. Like I can like with the way morphing works, that makes sense. It would be great if they had like more complex thoughts about that, but like yeah, okay. And then they got to the part where like those three are in charge. Like just no.
3: Yeah, that was yeah. a serious record scratch moment for me too because we hadn't even heard about those two characters until it was like yeah, do they no, even they have they names? Yeah, Craig and Erica. Oh. But it was funny because James had made such a point of picking his own team and his initial picks were the ones that like we got to know a little bit. And so to me, it would have made so much more sense that he made one of those folks because he clearly knows and trusts them.
2: He trusts them. He admires
3: them. Uh, So that, yeah, as I said, serious record scratch moment. And it was especially off-putting because some of the other stuff you can read as like Cassie's perspective and sort of editorializing Mm. like when she's like oh Mm. James was standing there with his strong body and I knew that that was like so great for inspiring people like you can just say like okay that's Cassie's perspective but when it comes to choosing these lieutenants that was something that James did and so that to me seems especially problematic.
1: Yeah I'm really glad you brought up that language because that was the other in addition to Erica and Craig coming out of nowhere the other yikes moment for me was like james is like super healthy leadership body or like whatever she described. it's like he's
2: like Jake yeah. but more so it's so
1: gross but i think that that's like it makes it you have to read it the other way where it's like okay so it's not cassie saying oh he looks really impressive and reminds me of Jake it's the author being like able bodied people are strong and better leaders Inspiring. right like yeah. this, which is, that's a good point <laughs> it's not i mean Like you were saying, Jenny, just know. But yeah, it's just like important to be clear that the language is like very... It's not that surprising to see it in something like this 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? But like...
2: It might only be 19 years ago now.
1: Oh, (laughs) God. That's so true. (laughs) Well, I
2: don't love that. Thank you.
1: (laughs) I guess it's just like one of the speech patterns I've been trying to correct for myself recently is avoiding lame as a put down. Mm -hmm. Like... Which is one that even being a relatively woke 20-something, it took me way longer than it should have to put together that that was such a pervasive part of my vocabulary, right? So, like, it's not surprising to me that... What i am saying is it's not surprising that the ghostwriter would be trying so hard and still completely screw up in this way.
0: Yeah, I have been trying that as well like it's one of those things where there are a lot of words that we use even as as you say like relatively woke human beings that are i the
3: the podcast has really made me start thinking more about my usage of the word nuts which i have historically used a lot
0: yeah yeah i wanted to talk about this book in the and like being in the 90s really quickly specifically because As part of our conversation, I was thinking about the um, Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. So the ADA was approved in 1990 and was a follow-up to, there there are other similar acts in U.S. law that are discussing people with disabilities, but they were passed in the 70s. And so those were updated in 1990 with the ADA. And the reason that I was interested in this was I was in a group in high school that was we were partnered with students who had disabilities, like for activities and in classrooms and that kind of thing. So I was intrigued to like, how did that work? And part of the ADA, one of the ways that it updated the laws from the 70s is the laws in the 70s kind of let students be segregated a lot more. So if you had a disability, either a physical or a developmental disability, It was much easier for those students to be segregated in their own like congregate living homes their own schools and so on and part of the kind of research in the last 40 years has been indicating that that's not as good for the students for any students but especially for those with disabilities and so the ADA one of the regulations was that those students had to be accommodated in public schools to the extent of the ability of the school to do that. So a lot more special ed teachers, more one-on-one, you know, one-on-one time with those students, that kind of thing. And that caused a big, I mean, I'm just remembering this even from the 90s. Like, I remember those conversations, I guess 2000s at this point. Like, I remember the conversations about, well, what does it mean to have a student with down syndrome in a classroom like how do you accommodate that um in what classrooms do you accommodate that to what extent do they need their own special education that's separate from the education that other students are receiving and i just think it's interesting that portraying this as like a congregate like a group home setting essentially this rehab center as like well we take all of the kids with disabilities and then we put them in one place and they live there. Is like it's it's kind of a deeply weird idea and I understand why they had to do it but it actually it strikes me as one of the things that the Animorphs does kind of poorly in some ways which is that when they need to have these discussions for whatever reason in this case you know because they want kids that the Yerks haven't infested yet it tends to be they box them off right so there was that Mm. what was the other one I lost I, I was real mad about was it the underground maybe Where there was the, they went into the the mental institution. Mental institution. There's this. There's the school for the blind in this one, and that's especially weird to me. When one of the very few things that they did well with the Lauren storyline in the last book was showing Mm -hmm. her as an integrated member of society. She went shopping. She had a guide dog. She had a job that was like Mm -hmm. fulfilling and useful. And like to then go from that to to show these kids as as separated in that way simply because of their disability is I actually is I think one of the things the book does really poorly once you get to know the kids great but having just having that setting seems both ahistorical and just not not great it just squicks me out a little bit
1: it's really weird how the narrative tries to have it both ways with this idea that the yurks are bad because they they ignore disabled people and this gives the Animorphs an opportunity to recruit. And so it's it's kind of like, oh, we're sticking it to the man and we're like overthrowing this oppressive, you know, authoritarian regime that wants to take over and, and do all these things. And then Axe points out, yeah, but humans aren't really any better because right. you're, you have this rehab center where you put all the people that nobody wants. And Axe is kind of like, and rightly so. Right. And is like wagging his finger at him. But the book never takes off so the, the level of thematic stuff of like really turning the looking glass back at human society and being like, mm-hmm. what does this say about us, right? Like they never really connect those dots. Yeah,
3: there's just the little bit of like Cassie being like, oh, he had a point about humans, you know, that sort of thing.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I just want to mention a couple of things that, that Jake formerly known as Prince uh, says in their blog post. I mean, mo- a lot of it's like stuff that we've already said, but specifically emphasizing the thing where James is leading other kids with disabilities and they mention it's a big part of third wave progressivism to emphasize subcommunities and various identities helping each other out. And I think that gets weakened a little bit by James being one of the few whose like disability gets changed by morphing. But it is at least it's not you know, they have their own leader, it's not everyone just answering to Jake. Yeah, definitely the thing where James gets cured, I and mean, we already talked about that in 49, so we don't have to get into it a ton. But yeah, the idea that disability is this like problem that must be fixed, and um, the post mentions like, the, the, the theoretical ideal point of the non-disabled body that he would have had if not for the car accident.
1: One thing in particular that jumped out to me on that point was like there's a moment of suspense where Cassie is like, this is the moment of truth. Who will be cured? And like that's a particularly... <laughs> gross way of highlighting that idea. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially because James is already exceptional in this context as a leader, and for him to be one of the ones who gets magically cured, I was like, I see why yeah. you did that, but I hate it. A lot. <laughs> like, I just don't like it. James's backstory actually really annoyed the crap out of me, because he's in this facility because he's he's in a wheelchair, and he's in a wheelchair because he was hit by a car when he was four and lost the use of his legs. And then his mother, like, brings him to the hospital for an operation and never comes back for him. Which, I don't... Yeah, it's not a totally
2: impossible thing to happen, but, like, I I think especially with the whole narrative of, like, yeah, no one's parents come back for them ever. And also the thing with Lauren...
1: No I mean you you keep coming back to this point, but I think that I think that the problem is that the book doesn't represent a broader array of yeah, things yeah, yeah. but I'm sure that there is a place where people who because they're bad people or can't don't have the resources abandon their kids because they don't want to deal mm-hmm. with the kid with disabilities. There yeah. must be a place where these kids go and so like it,
2: okay right? that's, like, it's that's not kind of fair I think
1: I think it's not i don't I don't want it to be like a place like this cannot exist. Because I think that it certainly can. Right. Like, and our that, society is yeah, That's not is what not... I'm
0: saying. It's more right. of the, like... I don't know. it.
1: But what I was going to say in support of your point is that Colette has this little metaphor about, like, well, the kids downstairs are all happy because they're kittens. And then when you grow up to be cats, mm. no one wants to play with you anymore. And I think that that has, like, such a strong emotional resonance that it's like, does that stand in for everyone? No, of course not. (laughs) There are plenty of disabled people whose families love them.
2: Colette does have a different story where she was living with her brother and his wife, but now they're, like, stationed at an army base that can't support, like, wheelchair access or whatever it is. Yeah. But I do think taken in conjunction with, like, Lauren was in a car accident that, like, we learned Mm. about in 49 and then couldn't take care of her kid anymore. This idea that, like, disability disqualifies you for like a normal place in a family mm. like just like it seems to be a pattern and it, it it's probably more likely like the book is using it as a convenient like uh we need them to, we need them to not have a family uh we need lauren to have disappeared for some reason yeah,
1: can it's- you imagine like the next book all 17 of these people show up <laughs> and then all of their parents also <laughs> show up and it's like Nathan, Ramona, <laughs> like they just start listing off all the names.
2: But, like, that's probably also a thing, where there are probably parents who can't take care of their kids in their own home, and so, like, they're housed at this place, but, like, their parents are still in touch, that never gets touched on. Like, it's a little bit like how... Um, Disney protagonists never have two parents, or like sometimes don't have parents at all. It's like, oh, we just need them to be out of the way. I don't know. They all abandoned them. Like it's just, it's a very well. Lazy it's actually that's interesting device. too
0: because that that plays into something that you've mentioned before in the with the animorphs that they can't get their parents involved because that's the that's the point. If you have teenage protagonists, you can't suddenly have their parents involved, and you see why in this book. Yeah, I can, yeah. So. The whole the <laughs> whole discussion where they like. Weakly justify
3: not giving any of their parents the morphing power. I mean, some are some oh justifications gosh. are weaker than others, but that was pretty funny.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll defend it when we get there. I, I had one other thing that really jumped out to me as a ableism problem is when they first have the discussion where Cassie's like, "Wait, kids with disabilities," and then the other animorphs are like, "Yeah, okay," and she's like, "Oops." <laughs> Rachel is like, Yeah, you know, the Yerk's the Yurks are terrible. This is obviously how they think. If you know, I bet if people get like cancer or lose a limb, they're just gonna kill the hosts, you know, rather than deal with them, you know, right? And I'm just like, how many times have we seen the Animorphs maim human controllers and be like, This is better than killing them? And if in the back of their heads they're like well, we know the Yurks are so bad, they're going to kill all of those hosts. Yeah, like, how I... have they never talked about this? And then, in this book, Axe gets away from a human controller at the end by cutting off his arm. And I'm like, how do you never address this? It's like, it's wow, like such a, a big... red. Ra- what yeah, real- yeah, Oh my goodness. Like,
2: wow, I hate it. I don't it. even know if that's ableist. I feel like it's just like... Bad. I don't know. They never put that Terrible. together or I something. I like
3: it. I am still curious about how the Yerkes actually are. Like, what is the exact evidence oh, yeah, let's get into that. for yeah. how Yerkes treat various bodies and and what they do with them, right? Because I was actually interested because in the last book, we had a very powerful controller who was an old woman, human yeah. body, who- you know, wasn't necessarily disabled, but the Yurk did refer to her as like this worn out human or something like that. I don't know if you all talked about that last time.
2: I don't... We didn't actually get into that, no.
3: I feel like there, there is some willingness on the part of the Yurks to accept variants in the bodies that they are controlling, at least from what we've seen, a little bit of willing.
2: Because Taylor too, right? Oh yeah, like, they just fixed her. They just fixed, I, yeah. They just quote, like, unquote, yeah, they like rebuilt her body to be the way that it was. It so why like. do they
0: give a sh- if they've got this like fancy technology that can quote unquote, and I hate the word, but like
2: fix these people like what the they don't care, but the yeah the cyborg whatever. So we did see in the last book; it wasn't explicitly stated. But for some reason, they don't infest Lauren, even though they're like outside her house for days, like waiting, I guess, for the anamorphs to show up. They are like very obviously surveilling her and they don't infest her. And it's never specifically said like, oh, well, they're not going to infest her because she's blind, but they don't infest her for some reason. I mean,
1: in in 19, we talked about how... Like, is Aftran's perspective that, like, sight is the most important thing? Mm. And, like, how could you ask a, how could you ask me to go back to being a blind slug? Like, if that viewpoint is pervasive among Yerks, it would totally make sense why they would yeah. not want to infest Lauren, right? It's mm. just that we don't, again, it's, like, more comfortable to imagine, okay, it's Aftran. Some Yerks must feel this way versus, like, as a society, the Yurks feel this way, which is a lot yeah. more what, where this book yeah. is coming down.
2: I don't know that we've seen a lot. We've seen the Yerks kill that teacher in book eight because his his Yerk, the Yerk died in his head and so he like knew stuff and so they just kill him for some reason instead of giving him a new Yerk. I don't know. And but I don't know that we've seen other executions like that. Yeah,
3: I guess I just wonder if it's if it's partly just the anamorphs making the assumption of like, oh the Yerks are evil, therefore they must be evil in this particular way. Or like how much yeah. evidence they've actually seen for it. I had a couple other questions related to this, actually. So, first of all, I was wondering about people with invisible disabilities, because the Eerks might infest them before they are aware that they are, quote-unquote, defective, if that's how the Eerks actually see people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we don't see anything like that, but I was just wondering.
1: The one thing that jumps to mind is the woman in Megamorphs 1 that Rachel runs into, who was Mm. like, she like she had a yerk in her head who died or something or like
2: yeah, i thought that was more of a um, candrona
1: starvation thing I thought it was
2: more of like the thing from viscer when when hildi's yerk is like pulled out of his head the like while it's dying and so like mm, that like messes mm-hmm, with his brain mm-hmm. i thought it was probably something like that but it, yeah it's not clear that they like because i think if they had if the yerk had left her head because of some like mental disability they would have just i think in that case they would have killed her
1: yeah it's also a you know, I'm sort of glad the book didn't like even try to deal with that because I think they would have it would have been even harder to mm. approach with the correct nuance. Right. That's totally but fair. There's a whole, I guess, like the science fiction of the idea of the like the morphing cube being able to change disability in human society is really interesting, especially given their sort of. It's a little hand wavy, but this idea that like some things can be cured and quote unquote cured, some things can be changed if you want them to, or reset if you want them to, and some things cannot, and mm-hmm. what that what that would do to the disabled community, I think it's a really interesting thing yeah. to have like present them with this tool and explore it. That's not really what the story is about.
3: I was going to say the other question I had about quirks and people with disabilities is I would think that the sharing or other sort of cult-like things might prey on people at the margins of society, mm. which might include people with disability. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how that does play out in this universe or not. Like, are they just like, nope, the sharing is only for people without disabilities. Like, what what is that? What does that look like?
1: And we had in Rogue 37, there was the story... Of the, the intern whose life turns around after he becomes a controller. Yeah. And I think at the at the time we were kind of like, well, yeah. So like, what if, I mean, being enslaved is terrible, right? But we have this idea that, it, like, Mr. Tidwell's perspective is like, I was so alone. Mm. Um, the reason that I wanted to...
2: Yeah, does Mr. Tidwell say he was depressed or does he just... I think
1: we just read between okay, the lines. Right. But, but so I could also imagine, like, if you really wanted to deal with an addiction, a yerk could probably help you with that.
3: Well, like if you're attacks
1: on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like, yeah, it's underexplored. The other thing that I was thinking about is my headcanon has been very much so the sort of morphing resets you to your somewhat your vision of yourself, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of like why it heals some injuries, but maybe wouldn't take away a childhood scar or, you know, there are other things that like, we've talked about inconsistencies about what gets reset and what doesn't. But then if you take that headcanon into this book, it's like, either that runs into a hard line somewhere where you can't imagine away your disability or like you can sometimes, but only if you really want it and only James really wants it. So like, then it's like, it's not a, that's not a good road to go down. The other thing
0: and like, listen, you guys know how I feel about this. Morphing is just magic. I just, (laughs) it still is. But one of the, one of the ways where that kind of comes up is when James morphs to pigeon and then morphs back He's been in a wheelchair for all these years, and his legs in that wheelchair, of course, have uh, atrophied with disuse. But then when he (laughs) morphs back, they are, quote-unquote, suddenly long and muscular. And I was like, no, they're not. Like, even if, like, that's not, your DNA does not tell you how muscular you are. Let me tell you very clearly, though, like, no. So that just means like that it doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. His body should have gone back to where to how even if he was healed, he still should have had I think like
2: physical therapy to like he, he still done. should have needed years of physical therapy to learn how to walk again. Like don't. so, I think that was part of the prince formerly known as Jake's point. I do it wasn't specifically stated, but like this idea that there is an ideal body he would have had, and that's what he goes back to. It's not like just reconstructed from DNA, which as you point out, right, does not determine how muscular you are. It's like, oh, this is this is your non-disabled body. Here it is. This is what it would be. As if that's yeah, like one which, single thing right. that can be known or like even extrapolated.
3: Yeah, the default ordinary option as compared to the Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Grump, grump, grump.
2: So it's been an hour and eight minutes that I've been recording and mostly we've talked about disability theory. Do we want to say anything about the auxiliary anamorphs without reference to their disability. I mean, we just got 17 new characters. I personally it. hate it. <laughs> like the power of these books is that each one is short And there's not that much time to go into a lot of complexity. Like they can get complex, so about like maybe one or two things per book. But there are so many of them. And we get to know the characters so well through sort of this accumulation. There are only like six of these characters and we really get to know them. Sometimes there's a book where we also get to know like 19. We got to know Aftran really well. We have four books after this in the series. We just got 17 new characters. We also have like all of these parents suddenly are in the know and are living with them and have their own thoughts and feelings. It is just completely impossible for us to, even if there were more books left, like to know all of these characters like this. And I feel like this sort of dilution of the character pool, like strips the series of one of my favorite things about it, which is how well we know these people and like this group that know and like each other. What are you laughing at? I'm
1: laughing because this book is like all about... Jake and Cassie. So, like, <laughs> you're complaining about diluting the character pool. But this book is all about a deep dive into Jake and Cassie. And so, like, I get what you're saying. Yeah, not we also have these,
2: like, 17 other and people. Tobias. We don't know them. No,
1: right, right, right. But, like, I mean, like, oh, exactly. either it's going to be, like, the James show from here on out. Or, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying.
2: It's not that I think they won't continue to focus on the main Animorphs. It's that we don't get to know these new ones and yet they're sort of in the group. So it like ruins this sense of like strong group. They don't know these new Animorphs well. Like you had the found family and now like all of a sudden all the relatives are in town and you're yeah. like, it's like if you always lived in a family reunion, it would be terrible.
1: No, I have, I have so many things to say about this, but I like I want to respond to like the what it does in the series Endgame game a little bit, but also just like the Auxiliaries' characters. I love them. I, I I wish the series had room to include them, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think the, I don't know if we should keep this reference in because it's such an obscure thing, but Claire is here. So <laughs> one of the best things about Worm, the web serial, is that you get these little interludes with secondary and tertiary and characters you've never heard of. And whenever you get a new person's perspective, the, almost invariably, the author does a great job of filling out that character so that they feel real and they it, it integrates into the world as you know it and so i would relish the opportunity for a james book or a toby book or an eric book right like in in series canon and i understand why that didn't why that didn't happen but i don't object to it at that point level and like i would just love the opportunity to get to know james more and colette and all these other they're like the possibilities of of bringing new characters in and seeing how they bounce around off of other people i find really exciting i don't i'll respond (laughs) to the like dilution thing which i think is totally valid but like i just want to say that we've seen them introduce characters that sort of like fall flat but like james is not one of them i'm like super invested in this as a, and Colette
2: and Kelly as and a are all really yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah, I see your point. I think it would be fun to get some of those characters' perspectives too. I just like the the band of six is such an integral part of this series to me, and like breaking that up is personally devastating to me. Like it much more so when I was a kid, but like even now I'm like, yeah. I mean, that's that's a big part of what I loved about it, and like that's gone. Like mm. they're still there, but it's different.
1: So, what did you two think?
3: So, um, I can see where you're both coming from, and I have to, you know, give the caveat that I'm not like a huge fan of the series like you two are. so and and I did not read it as a child, like Jenny and and Ted both did. So I, like Ted, am a glutton for character., uh, so I definitely like really enjoy when new characters are introduced that are introduced with depth and have a lot of interesting features that could be explored. However, I totally see what you're saying, Jenny, about like, given that there's this focus on these main six, what does it mean that with the very limited bandwidth that exists in these mm-hmm. short, tight books, what does it mean to have all these extra characters that take up some, some airtime? And I actually was reminded a little bit of the seventh season of Buffy with the <laughs> oh, flares. Yes.
2: I hated that season.
3: <laughs> Which a lot of people had problems with for exactly that reason. And I think it's a it's kind of a similar idea where you had this like very tight core group of characters. And suddenly yeah. you're like,
2: whoa, what are all these random characters doing here? I was actually just thinking about a Buffy moment in, uh, I think it's like season two or something. When, uh, you know, it's like Buffy's identity is a secret and there are only these few people who know. And and Xander's like, what, you told that person? You can't tell other people. It cheapens it for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a great breaking of the trope of like, oh no, we have to keep it secret for real reasons. No, we have to keep it secret because it's more fun when it's a small group. And it was more fun when it was a small group.
3: One thing I, I will say, um, not having read any of the rest of the, the end game or knowing what's going to happen, like the main group of the Animorphs are now all physically in one place that is in a Mm. different place from the auxiliary animorphs. I I mean, I think that that could still make it so that, like, whether (laughs) this is good or bad, you can have some things where it's like, oh, yeah, and the auxiliary animorphs were, like, off doing this other thing, right?
2: Like, so Mm. it it
3: seems to me like there's still plenty of
2: room. And they still know and trust each other to a degree, and they have the experience. Like, it's not like it's just a big group of 23 animorphs.
3: And the the one other thing I will say is, As I said, I I really like the sort of like spiraling out that's happening at the end Mm -hmm. of this series from what I've seen of like they had this sort of not under control, but like in themselves and just the group that knew about it and was fighting this war and stuff. And now suddenly it is expanding beyond their control. And I think that that Mm -hmm. feeling is like really interesting and what it's doing to them, like what it's doing to Jake and Cassie, as we see in this book, is also really interesting. And I think that that is worth whatever diffusion you get from adding, bringing these extra characters in. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's really, it is really interesting. It's not what I was reading for when I was a kid, but it's a little bit parallel to how I felt about 19 the first time I read it when I was a kid. And I was like, oh no, this war is actually traumatic for these kids. I'm not interested in that. Like I was, I was there for these kids having adventures. Who cares the cost to them? And I think this is, this is a little bit parallel in that, like, yeah, of course the war needs to change. They can't just keep fighting the Yorks in secret forever. That doesn't make any sense. And it's less interesting. It just, you know, baby Jenny was not there for it.
0: Yeah. I think what Claire was saying was absolutely right. Same caveats. I really like the phrase spiraling out because I think that's a really Great way to think about this and what they've been doing in the last few books. That just made me think
3: of how Cassie is a Yates fan.
0: Did you guys? Yes. Guess that? Yeah. Jack is the center. The center the is center not can holding. I'm oh, hold <laughs> That
3: was yes. all over this
1: book for some reason. It was right. really and weird. Like, and <laughs> yeah.
3: then there's the whole, like, um, James is a lion man, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh my God. Oh, I don't even know oh, what
3: okay, so, i don't know what I'm Wait. talking about. Wait. The poem, The Second Coming by Yates. Is like
0: totally all over this book, and I'm all about it. Anyway,
3: yeah. Oh my I, God,
1: Claire, that's so that's amazing.
0: Especially because Jake's a falcon. Like right. I right, yeah, I, the it falcon, hadn't the falcon, and then all of a sudden I was like the face the of the a lion. Gyre. Yeah, yeah. I'm super into Oh my
1: it. God, oh yeah. my God.
0: I loved that actually.
1: I know I, I love this book. Full stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I I have one more, just one quick thought on that, on on the idea of adding these auxiliary auxiliary animals and how <laughs> it changes the series. And I think I would agree more with Jenny's perspective on this. If, yes, oh, I would. If oh darn it, sorry, <laughs> I wanted an ally. I know. I it's I see where you're coming from so much <laughs> and. I agree that it does dilute some of the best aspects of the books, which is the the core found family, this group of six people who trust one another so deeply, but I think the books have already diluted that by their approach to these characters. And we've talked a lot about that in in these books, but even the, the books before, even before they told their parents, there were enough books that really lost that thread in a number of different ways mm-hmm. that... I had already kind of lost it myself. Like when you mm. say that, I'm like, yes, that is a good part of these books. But we haven't seen that
2: in a, it's while. Been a while. Yeah, you know, yeah. and
0: so I think if I had read the first twenty, you know, over and over and over again, I think mm-hmm. this, that's exactly right. Yeah, but reading all of them in order. That ship has sailed.
2: Yeah. I mean, at this point in the series, when I was a kid, I was just chasing something that had pretty much died. I'm sorry to say I, I that <laughs> I like the
0: auxiliary Animorphs because they're bringing more interest back into a dynamic that has staled in a lot of ways. And not just sailed, yeah. but like really been disrupted in ways that I yeah. want to talk about here, but like it, not great.
1: To the point about their, their thing in the series, I think one, I actually totally agree with you that the series... The format of the series cannot contain what Apple Grant is trying to do with the ending. Mm. I think that it's mm. it's totally right that, like, introducing all these characters in a middle grade series where you have such limited real estate and you want to do service to all the characters you know and love, mm-hmm. like, it's basically impossible to pull it off. And I really like what we see from the rest of the series, but I think that this is actually a great example, and we will probably come back to it over and over and over again, of like, they were trying to really do this sci-fi war story thing justice in a format that was like totally unsuited to it. And I'm super interested mm. yeah, in that following right. that thread as we yeah. go. But I also really like how it connects to what you were saying about 19, where it's like, Oh, I wanted the Animorphs to keep having fun and becoming cool animals and like, you know, beating down on Visser three. Cause he's like
2: danger, but in a right. cool way.
1: Cause he's so, he's such a fool. Right. <laughs> and like how that, that kind of like stuck the knife in and you were like, I can never get this back. Yeah, I think yeah. that this is another good example of like, the story that they want to tell, at the end, they really do want to remind you what is really happening to these characters Mm -hmm. in like a non-fun way. And I feel like, I feel like that is an intentional authorial choice. The last thing is like introducing the auxiliaries that we've had whenever it was, whether it was like the, the blood bank mission in 49, or maybe before that, the last Animorphs mission, as we know it, has happened. And at the start of this book, none of the characters knew that. But mm-hmm. the whole first half is they're like, oh, wow, bringing our families in has completely changed the dynamic. We're all spread mm-hmm. out. Jake has lost it, right? Like, they're, they're completely diffuse or whatever. And then they come back for like one conversation and they're like, yeah, we have to get more animorphs. Like, yeah, that, okay. that dynamic is mm-hmm. gone. And the book, the, this book does the work of trying to figure out what can replace it right Mm, so mm, like mm. it's interesting to me that to me that's one of the things that connects the two halves of the book is kind of like at the beginning of the book the band of six is gone Mm -hmm. and at the end they replace it with a band of 23 Uh right so like that is kind of what the book is trying to do yeah, I, that doesn't make it any less upsetting, but I think that's what the book is about.
0: Hmm. Yeah,
2: that makes sense. I like that. I like that analysis. Do you want to talk about the parents? Let's talk about the parents. Uh, they were real annoying. That was one of the parts of the book that I felt like was like underdone. Like I, I think probably oh, a lot of their perspectives. I really liked it. <laughs> okay, that's good. I'm glad you liked it. I, I found Rachel's mom so aggravating, and yep. I found her a little more realistic than Cassie's parents, but I feel like. Suddenly having adults in the mix, like, they want to make it a little bit realistic. But, like, I don't know. I I feel like they're still trying to keep the adults as only characters a little bit. And it's not quite working. Yeah. I don't know. I want to I wanna hear what you liked about it there, Ted. I mean, it, there were there were a lot of good parts of it.
1: Well, I feel like I should try and defend Naomi first.
2: I mean, if you can. Like, I get it. I just also... I was I was reading it. I was like, I get it. I also just want to, like, I don't know, push you over a rhododendron bush or something.
1: I, think, I don't get so, it. And it, uh, the Animorphs, as we've said before, are incredibly mature teenagers. Adults are also, like, not that mature, right? I am now unquestionably an adult <laughs> and I don't feel it, right? Like, so I, I totally buy that Naomi refuses to accept the new reality that has been ushered in. And she's, she's used to, like, juggling a lot of things. And she's worried about the safety of her daughters. Mm-hmm. And she feels like she, Rachel should respect her because that is her role in the family is Mm -hmm. like to be an authority to her daughter. Right. And like, it is completely absurd that this group of adults chooses to follow a 15 or 16 year old boy. Yeah. And we should talk about that campfire scene, but like, I'm completely with Naomi when she's like, this is like, you know, mass psychosis. Like uh, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to go with it because everyone's going with it. But like, we should not be listening to Jake. That is completely one on the face of it. There's no reason why Jake has to continue to leave them. And two, he's making some really bad choices. They should not yeah. be putting this responsibility back yeah. in his hands. And we should talk about that a lot more. It, to me, it's really sad when Naomi finally starts to break down in front of her daughters. And like the reality is kind of like falling in on her. It's probably unrealistic, like, if she's been there for two weeks, that this moment didn't happen sooner. Yeah, I like, why sooner. She
2: talk to Ava already? Ava, Ava should recognize that she needs to talk to yeah. the other parents, like, immediately. I understand,
1: the, I understand, again, like, the plotting is a little convenient. And, like, I agree with you that we don't get really enough. She's kind of like a comic relief or kind of, like, device for Rachel to play off of and the other people to play off of. But I feel like the emotions there are pretty plausible.
2: Yeah, no, I think I overstated the thing where I feel like it's... It's underdone. I found it incredibly aggravating, but I do think even if it wouldn't have happened quite in this order, it certainly is stuff that would have happened. The
1: stuff with Cassie's parents I love because it is so clear why Cassie is the way she is from who (laughs) her parents are, right? Her mom is like the problem solver and her dad is the like philosopher. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: for Cassie to have to face basically two versions of herself from earlier in the series and be like, "Uh, no, this is a war (laughs) and no... Moral choices are not that simple, dad. I love yeah. so Okay, that's a great point. Much. It's like, if for Cassie's final book, that is like the perfect thing to end it on. Basically her being like, having this kind of like, crisis that is born out of, oh, wow. Okay, so sometimes I am sort of like more adult than my parents. And now I understand why Marco is always making fun of me. <laughs>
3: I also really appreciated how angry Cassie felt at having to be the adult and feeling like yeah, she was down by yeah. her parents for the, by their naivete that reflected the way that she used to be. Mm-hmm. That really, I
1: appreciated that. She's the only one who has such a new, well, I guess she and Rachel are in a similar place. She and Rachel are the only ones who have the new family situation in this way, right? Because like for Marco and Tobias, they have regained their families and are like now i will not sacrifice this anymore please jake is having a total crisis because he's lost his parents right but cassie is now like oh i don't have this like happy family that still exists that's untroubled by the war now i have to deal with them every day and that's driving her up the wall
3: (laughs) so i i get why jenny you're frustrated by some of the (laughs) characterization of, of the parents in here i i think that Again, it's hard to do with so little airtime for yeah, everything. Yeah. I think that given that, it was pretty well done. The other thing I will say is I was very interested in all the parent stuff because, I, as I said before, I think paternalism is one of the mm-hmm. main themes mm-hmm. of this book. And I think the way yeah. that parenting relates to paternalism and the way that these specific child-parent relationships have paternalism expressed in unusual ways um, is an interesting aspect of that. So I I guess I I really think that this is, as I said, a a huge theme. I I guess I'm thinking of paternalism by the lay definition of like making choices, thinking that you know better than somebody else what is good for them.
2: So Mm -hmm.
3: that is often something that parents do for children, right? That's like a very common mm-hmm. way that's often a an
2: appropriate it's way often to appropriate act, yeah. and
3: justified exactly and in fact we do see the parents you know trying to express that in various ways like Cassie's dad expresses it both for her and for Jake when he's saying, like, we can't put this responsibility on you. It's too much. Um, That's sort of like an expressing of, like, well, I think this is better for you um, and and trying to make a choice that's better for you than the choice that you're making yourself. And obviously, Rachel's mom is really struggling with not being the one to be able to make the choices that are better, that she thinks are better for her family and her, her daughters. Um, But then, of course, the kids are very paternalistic towards their parents, Mm -hmm. as they do know better in some ways about what the actual situation is, and they're trying to convince their parents of that, and in some cases just make choices regardless of whether they've convinced their parents or not. So I also think that paternalism comes up a lot in the choices that Cassie and the rest of the team are making about whether to bring in the auxiliaries, you know, whether to go and recruit disabled kids to the
2: team. And and also in James's decision to recruit his well, yes, friends. Well, yeah, that's
3: explicitly called Which is something
2: out. Cassie calls yeah, out. Cassie or says, calls yeah, out.
3: Cassie says, yeah, Cassie says, Cassie basically accuses James of paternalism in not allowing his friends to make the choice.
1: But also, I was just gonna say, but also James insists, he's like, he basically insists on autonomy. Right, he's like, I will not take orders from you. Yeah. So he, he throws off this kind of like paternalistic thing, like, Jake, I will like take orders from you, but I want you to see me as an equal too. Mm-hmm. And I have say so over my team.
3: Yeah. Well, I think that's actually one thing that I really wanted to bring up. And I think it relates a lot to what Gray called out at the very beginning of when we were talking about, about this being like a, a huge book about Jake's leadership. Because I think the question yeah. of leadership in this kind of context and how it relates to paternalism is a really interesting one. Right. And it's I think it's flagged a lot in Cassie's conflicted feelings about following Jake. And then I think most importantly, in her final action, which is extremely paternalistic, where she chops on Jake's leg so that he can't do the thing that he wanted to do. And I'm sure we'll get into exactly what the flavor of her paternalism was there. Like, was it moral paternalism where she was, I think it's it's partly, my read on it is that it's mostly about Jake's emotional well-being. That's like what she claims it is. But I think there is some like saving his soul, like saving his moral mm-hmm. well-being as well that's going on there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think before we get into the ending, I wanted to say like, I think you make a really good point about like how Cassie's feelings about it evolve. I think multiple times she thinks, like, she She at least connects the line between, like, yeah, so when it was just the six of us, that was fine. You know, Jake was the leader. We all kind of did stuff. And we were all kind of, like, forged by this experience. And none of us really, we all sort of chose it, but we also didn't really choose it. We were just kind of thrown into it. And they're like, okay, but we brought our parents in. And now we have some responsibility to them. And if we bring in these other kids, won't we have responsibility to them, too? And Cassie's very much, like, I think she wants to think about her parents and, at first, the auxiliaries as, like, the skunks in book nine. She's Mm. like, well, if I bring them in, then I have all the responsibility for everything that happens to them. And she comes around to a more nuanced point when she uses her Cassie superpower of persuasion to stare James in the eye and be like, hey, kid, duty's calling. Like, you have to, (laughs) like... You and your team can consent to this or not, but it's the right thing to do. Like, mm. you can all choose, but you don't have a choice. Mm. And I'm like, this is such a, I don't know. I love Cassie realizing, it, coming to that perspective in the end. And kind of giving up on the idea of like, well, okay, well, if, if I was here first, I have responsibility for everything that happens afterwards. Yeah,
3: I know I you mean. I think that scene was kind of interesting to me from the perspective of, like, what is going on with informed consent in this scenario, because she actually calls out informed consent and the importance of it earlier, and then she basically is, like, acknowledging that now that they've told them this, they don't actually have a choice. I mean, saying you have a choice, but you don't have a choice. And I feel like they did not really think through enough ahead of time what the implications of just giving the information is in terms of, like, how that compels auxiliaries to yeah. make a choice and that's kind of that's i guess also not really an example of paternalism because it's not exactly about what's best for the auxiliaries it's about what's best for third parties like the rest of the world and, and the animorphs themselves
2: yeah i mean it might actually even be an example of like lack of paternalism like they even though it's not they're like this probably isn't in their best interest but we're gonna let them decide because we need them right
1: but that's why they that's why they go to them exactly. right like yeah they're yeah. They need they need their recruits, and they know that they can't say no. It, it reminds me of Tobias in forty three when Taylor like tempts him, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Yeah, I mean, I do have a choice. Like, <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going to go with Taylor, but I have it. Like, I have a choice." And he thinks like, "Well, when I got stuck as a bird, I could have died. I, I could have died, mm-hmm. or I could have stayed and did what I did, or I could have." Uh, demorphed and sold out the Animorphs to the Yurks, But he didn't choose either of those things. He chose to be stuck as a bird, right? Even though it wasn't a choice. I, I
3: think it is interesting how in that moment with like, well, when she's going along with the plan to give the information to these disabled kids and then allow them to become recruited as auxiliaries, I guess you could say that Cassie has like overridden or is realizing the sort of negative aspects of paternalistically withholding that choice and that option from them. As she says to Jane, but I think on the whole especially given her final action like I think that Cassie is very sort of naturally inclined towards paternalism and yes. yeah
1: <laughs> that's mighty Cassie
3: <laughs> um has a lot
2: of conviction that she knows what's best mm-hmm. for better or worse and I feel like this book as a whole is really struggling with responsibility like this whole series it's been these six people have the responsibility to defend Earth because they're the only ones who know about it. And they could choose to tell other people, but it's not safe. And so the responsibility all rests on them. And now there are other people who know. And so in theory, the responsibility could be more diffuse. But now responsibility has shifted a little more into control. Like, mm. do they have the responsibility to keep control of this fight, even mm. though there are other people who could get involved, like their parents, like well, you know Toby? And... There is a good argument for, yes, they're the only ones with the experience, but also they've been really damaged by this. Jake in particular is suffering. Like they decide that they need to keep control. Jake decides that he needs to not become a child again. It like because of the genre, that has to be the choice. But it's debatable whether that's the right or the only good choice for them.
1: Yeah. I love the fire scene. Yeah. So much yeah. for that reason. So like why does Ava back Jake? Because I think that's the moment where everything turns, right? Mm. Because you going into that scene, right? Jake's completely given up. Cassie calls a council, basically, to say, Hey, so we gotta we gotta stop the infighting. We have to have a plan. Mm-hmm. And they have a whole debate, and Naomi and Cassie's parents are talking and stuff, and Jake finally steps forward, and I forget exactly in what order it happens, but at some point Ava says Jake is the only one that Visser 1 fears, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we need to follow him. And then the other parents start coming around. And then Jake finally says, fine, I will be your leader, but only if all of you say I'm the leader right now. So he (laughs) he wants, he's like, he says to Cassie earlier, at some point Marco just said I was the leader and I don't want it anymore, right? Like he needs the validation Mm -hmm. of the group to basically say like, you want me to lead, then you're going to put me in charge, right? Like he he needs to be able to take on the responsibility of making these life or death choices. He wants everyone else to be complicit in that, right? Like yeah, he doesn't want to do sense. it. He want doesn't to want it to do alone. it paternalistically, right? Work. He's like exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's like why does Eva? Why doesn't Eva step forward and say, "I will follow me"? You know, like why? Why? <laughs> why do the characters? Yeah, but like. <laughs> I'm so interested in this choice because I think it's it's I think it's a valid one. I don't think it's like completely it's like completely absurd. But
0: no, I mean, so one of the things that Jake says is the only reason I'm a leader is because Marco said I was at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason I've been doing this so far. And it is a very good point because, <laughs> you know, Jake stood up, stepped up into that role and he did a great job and he has been doing a great job. But Jake is also losing it. Mm. And. It's nice that he recognizes that he still needs to get people's buy-in for his leadership. That is his leadership style. He is not overly paternalistic. He's not an authoritarian. Like he wants he wants debate amongst his followers. And that's why he hasn't like really re- reacted at all to the fact that I think this in this book, now one of the Animorphs has disobeyed
2: him. At least once. In <laughs> has a Tobias
1: betrayed means. him yet? Tobias is the holdout. Yeah, no,
0: maybe he Tobias.
2: Has 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 oh, and him. Rachel. Rachel. Had 40, yeah, with Rachel. Yeah, yeah. Tobias definitely he, did in forty nine. Yeah. He went Tobias
0: to, in forty nine. Yeah. Rachel oh, yeah, done yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Marcus de- Axe has done it. Did Rachel do it? Well,
3: Tobias also made like the unilateral decision about the Mercora and the Mercora. I
0: mean, mean
2: yeah, yeah okay. but like
1: oh,
0: yeah. that, in the that past was a long time. Five about. books. They have each <laughs> of them have done this now, right? So
1: okay, but I do want to say. To date, Jake has been that way, but I think there's evidence in this book that his leadership oh, style yeah. is changing. So I want to yeah. I want to talk about that.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that because I like don't really get Jake's perspective here in a lot of ways. So and I want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, one thing. This is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. This so after Jake becomes leader again, the next day he's like, "Yeah, we need to expand the team," and I feel like that's really under justified. <laughs> like. Why couldn't? Why didn't they do this five books ago? Why mm-hmm. don't they do it five books from now? You said like we can't wait three days. I don't. I don't Suddenly really understand where a it comes really from. Big rush. But somehow yeah. Jake like decides this, and if people have ideas about why he's come to this thing, okay, clear. Oh, yeah.
3: I well, I just have some ideas related to the second coming, and you know, James as like Jake too, right? Mm-hmm. Right.
1: <laughs> he should be the leader.
3: Well, no, I mean, I, I think, the
1: war hasn't stomped on him yet.
3: I guess yeah. what what I'm trying to say with this is, I think that part of Jake's sudden feeling of we need to get more anamorphs is his conviction that he's going to die soon or that like life is impermanent oh my God. It's or so his so is oh. impermanent.
1: Why, how did they how did they construct how can how did they construct this book as like a perfect second coming parable <laughs> it's ridiculous it like it I, i'm i'm looking at this poem. i'm coming I, around I, don't on this. I, wrote like, yes, I had never i had never thought of that and it is truly perfect Sorry, I cut you off, Claire. I'm just, I'm blown away. I
3: was so sad at this part where, don't get attached, Jake said tiredly. Life is probably going to be a lot shorter than you thought it would be. I was just like- Oh my god. Oh man.
0: Jesus, that's That's my perspective on
3: where he's coming from, is basically like, feeling like death or oblivion or whatever is imminent and he needs to ensure that this continues past him. And
1: he says that. He says that. He he says we need the redundancy. right? right. So I He's actually, like, people are going to start yeah, dying.
3: As soon as yeah. they get to this ward and it's like James and his roommate, Pedro, I was like, Bacon Marco. <laughs> like, I didn't even connect Pedro and
2: Marco. Oh, man. <laughs>
3: just like yeah. some of the name things. And then we even have like a, yeah, Colette and Timmy. Like they're, they're just like some name things.
1: Also, the um the thing James chooses the lion morph and Cassie is like, Jake isn't superstitious. All he said was, good choice, James. I love that so much. Yeah. Because I, it a call back to David, right?
2: Yeah. yeah, I was just looking at the scene where Jake's like, we need more anamorphs. And Marco's like, oh, really? I can't get comfortable with that. And then, no way, Rachel exploded. I was like, whoa, that is a verb for Rachel. And I was like, oh, right. She just presumably killed David two books ago. So presumably Rachel is seeing in this like, we're going to recruit more people who I'm going to eventually have to kill.
1: Yeah. Like that's,
2: that's her perspective. And also the
1: fact that she is like taking out all of this anger on like her mom instead of on the other Animorphs is so sad because Mm -hmm. Cassie thinks to herself, yeah, Rachel was probably having a tough time right now because recently Kryak tried to tempt her to kill Jake and she had to deal with David again. And in the context of like Cassie walking away from her mid (laughs) rant, right? Like poor Rachel, come on. Her best friend. (laughs) Rachel could just be like what look what you made me do and she does not it's like it's so sad
3: Poor Kathy is very focused on what's going on with Jake emotionally more than she is
2: oh yeah so we were saying that Jake Jake does sort of take on this authoritarian leadership and it probably does have a lot to do with his approach to the group has always been like keeping the team cohesive presumably for a future and now maybe he doesn't see a future but he makes this incredibly stupid decision that they're going to only fly partway to this residential center land, demorph and steal some bikes because that's less conspicuous. And then when Marco challenges him on it, he like shuts it down. He's like, you guys decided I was the leader. So I'm the leader, which is so out of character. I I can't decide if I think it's bad writing or if it's like a a good part of like Jake's actual like character. I have a theory. Mm-hmm. And my theory is
0: that originally this detour was going to allow him to check on his parents Oh. and that they had to take that out because then Tom comes back. Because otherwise, it's just stupid. Like, why are you doing this detour? But when it's described, it's like, and then we did this, like, dangerous a different dangerous route. And I was like, oh, well, obviously they're going to take the route where Jake can like check on his parents and make sure they're still alive and still okay, though infested. And then it was like, oh no, we're going to like steal some bikes. It's like, I'm sorry. you like, why
1: So I, we should talk about how stupid that bit is. Cause it's pretty bad. I think he getting into that though, he displays his new take on leadership because he does sort of call for a vote,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: he, it's like the veneer of democracy, Jake, but what he does in the scene where he's like, we have to recruit more Animorphs. He he sort of diffuses some of the objections. Cassie comes up with the auxiliaries idea and then says, no, 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 let's not do it. And then Marco's like, yeah, I'm I've, I'm convinced. Rachel's like, yeah, sure. And so Jake calls out all the Animorphs but Cassie by name as a way of rallying the votes. Mm-hmm. And then without talking to Cassie at all, he issues a bunch of orders And then he circles back to Cassie at the end and says, so you agree now, right? So, like, to me, this is Jake. Jake has always externalized Cassie as his conscience. So to me, this is Jake being like, now I am leader. You know, I'm going to, like you were saying, Claire, I'm going to die soon. We're all going to die soon. People just need to, like, I'm going to do the best that I can. And this is what I'm doing. And I don't have time for anything else anymore. And so he looks to Cassie kind of like for forgiveness at the end. Because he's like, yeah, you know. You're with us, right? Yeah, like my conscience is still with me, right? Like I'm I'm doing okay. You said a few books ago that you would trust me to make decisions in the moment, right? And then the reason that I love the end of this book is because literally Jake's conscience comes back to bite him at the end, right? Like and we can we should talk about the ending differently, but like it works it works so well that he he completely oh, like very funny. steamrolls over her to the point that she he kind of like forgets that she can stop him. In the mm-hmm. way that the Animorphs have from time to time. Anyway, mm-hmm. do we want to talk about how stupid that middle <laughs> part was?
2: Let's just, yeah, let's briefly talk about how incredibly stupid. I mean, Jake's plan, there's nothing less conspicuous than I just to, flying right to the center. I
1: have to read it as complete and total incompetent. Like, Jake has completely lost it, right? Like, it's. I
2: like Gray's theory, where yeah. he had a plan to spy on his parents. I mean, I think that there's a third
3: option, which is he's sort of intentionally semi-intentionally getting reckless with almost, like, a death wish or, like, a capture wish. Mm.
2: Oh, that's
1: really interesting. Hmm.
2: I like that. That does explain that a little more. I still give an extreme side-eye to they land, demorph, presumably no one can see them demorph, go to steal some bikes... And there are controllers watching the bike store who immediately see at our and line, recognize the lights, bandits. Did they recognize them? If they did, why would they call them? I, I thought it was so and funny. Her, they called them and <laughs>
0: I loved that. I, that whole thing was so good in part, because it was the most, it was the dumbest sentence that had, listen, there's a lot of really <laughs> dumb shit that happened in this, but like, so yeah, they like steal a bike store. Somehow the yurks. No, it's them and it's them stealing bikes. Right it doesn't how make any sense. And and Cassie says, of course the Yerks would have had every inch of every local town covered. The one bicycle shop, the three Starbucks, the massive <laughs> Barnes and Noble, the four McDonald's. Of course they would be waiting for us. Are those like the like What are, are you talking about? What? <laughs> what what nonsense? Please explain me. Are you talking about? Also, so, like, every little... How big is this town? What do you mean they have... It's why a are they three covering McDonald's town? and not, like, the car rental place? Like, like, it doesn't make... Sense. I've changed
1: my opinion here. I think, while Jake's plan is still very stupid, this is actually a coincidence. The bike shop is a new pool entrance, and the people guarding it are very, very stupid controllers. And okay. so, when they see kids stealing bikes, they do not know for a fact, but they're like, this is a diversion to get us away from the pool entrance, oh, and so they go out guns yeah. blazing. This explains the other plot hole, which is when the Animorphs are inside a costume shop and they're like, we have no options. We can either go out into the alley as cockroaches and get trod upon, or we can go out as our human selves and get shot at. And then they're like, no, wait. We will disguise ourselves as a magician, a fortune teller and a beat poet and walk out into a group of like theater kids in this in this alley. And somehow those costumes prevent the controllers from recognizing them. Right. Like it's completely impossible unless they didn't actually recognize them in the first place.
2: They're like, Oh, stupid. people are coming out of the costume shop. Yeah. Oh, but they're in costume. It can't be the Andalite <laughs> Bandits so ted i think you also pointed out to me a major plot hole in this whole scene which is that they're flying with the separated pieces of I'm, the Eskerfield i'm so device, mad about this i'm this so is, mad first of all there's that so many cube bad retcons. separates. um, um i the, the cube breaks down into pieces it breaks <laughs> okay. down into pieces i'm i'm so mad about this i'm also sidebar so mad about the thing where cassie's like Wow, sometimes you just want, like, it's a blessing and a curse, like definitely some foreshadowing. Sometimes you just want to weigh it down and drop it to the bottom of the ocean, but someone could still find it. Or fish could morning Are you saying that there's no way to destroy the cube?
0: Yeah, that is
2: what they're saying. B Not even a piece of it. It's like the one ring. this universe... That, are you saying a Dracon beam oh. aimed at this cube will not hurt you? Sorry,
1: I, spoil, I spoiled the end of the series where they have to throw the Eskifil <laughs> device into a volcano. <laughs> and How
2: could you? Spoilers. Oh, the eagle parts is cool, though.
1: You know what else is canon? You can acquire Tobias.
2: Yeah, yeah. that was double down on. Once I was a mistake, you can't but ab- 20 you times. You can't acquire Tobias.
0: I had to learn f***ing <laughs> rules, and now you had to just throw also, it all out.
1: couldn't... Can't Tom morph? He touched the cube for like a second. And as we know from 39, <laughs> these are the three retcons that jump out to me as like, you can't have it both ways with like how the cube works. If yeah. Jake gives Tom the cube, he should be able to immediately morph, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, presumably giving the end of the book, he will at some point. But like, I just...
2: So, okay. So everything with the Escafil device is terrible. But yes, also, they're flying with the pieces of it. And then they have to morph Roach. And then they go under a wall... What happened to the Escafrile device? Where is it? Did they bring the pieces under the wall? This is like a, a cube I like, even thought of that, that it is, is too is big so for ridiculous. a bird to carry.
1: Clearly, they incorporated it into their cockroach morphs with the froless maneuver.
2: It's <laughs> so not what the froless maneuver is for, Ted. I hate Escafrolis. it so much.
1: Yeah, it's a terrible plot hole. So I do want to talk about the amazing OT3 adventure in a positive way. So, <laughs> okay. So... A couple of things about this. We get a lot of Cassie and Jake in this book. We also get a lot of Marco and Jake. I feel mm-hmm. like in the beginning when yeah. Jake is, everyone knows that Jake uh, has been broken by the loss of his parents, but no one's really doing anything about, anything about it. But there's this bit in the beginning where like Rachel is kind of like calling Jake out directly and Marco kind of diffuses the tension a little bit. I feel like he's mm-hmm. being a really good lieutenant and he's trying mm-hmm. to like give yeah, him space and yep. trusting that yeah. he'll come around.
0: And he's also filling in some of the gaps. When Jake is an idiot, like not thinking (laughs) about how the kids that they've given morphing power to are going to morph. And Marco, like, solves that problem. It's like, he there's a bird in, in my sleep. way. But, like, he <laughs> no. solves it. It, it fits
3: that, uh, that Marco's a magician and Cassie is a fortune teller and Jake is a beat poet, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's,
1: it's so perfect. Oh, man,
2: that's way also, too on the nose. I oh, tried man. to find fan
1: art of this and could not. I desperately want fan art of this these costumes.
2: Wait, can we also discuss how the only costume Jake could find that would fit him... Was a Beat Poet costume, which, first of all, what costume shop even has that? It was just like a turtleneck and jeans or something. Yep. And also, what size is this guy? He's like It's a costume shop. He, like He's like a sort of normalish adult size, presumably. They would have costumes that fit him. <laughs> he's
1: seven feet tall and James is eight feet tall. That's
2: real question, I have.
1: <laughs> so that moment that you talk about when... So Jake is like, oh gosh, I forgot to bring something that could morph we need to abort the mission. He starts to like kind of panic and Marco very gently is like, no man, it's okay. We got this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to overrule you on this one. Right. Oh, he's, yeah. he's really not fighting with him. He's doing it in like a really kind oh, and vulnerable great. way. And, and like uh, Cassie also he says something super condescending to him. And he's like, are you patronizing me? And then like, Marco's like, you get used to it after a while, Jake, <laughs> like, come on. Again,
4: diffusing the situation.
1: But like, Cassie and Marco are really there for Jake as like a person in this uh-huh. book mm-hmm. in a way that I find really nice.
2: There's the moment before when Jake's like, we're going to do this plan of stealing bikes, etc. And Marco's like, this is a terrible idea. And Jake's like, you made me the leader. And Marco you know, backs down and then shoots a significant look at Cassie where like he's communicating like, okay, we're going to keep an eye on this. Yeah. And that was yeah. such a great... Like, Marco Cassie moment. We've seen him do, we've seen them do that before. Like, I think in Wars 3, they were like, okay, we're not going to let Jake die. Like, it's that, it's that kind of yeah, moment. Yeah, I really
3: love Marco in this book in general. Like, country Marco mm-hmm. is such a great moment. and mm-hmm. But also just about how he is with Jake. After Jake says the thing about, like, life is going to be shorter than you thought, Marco's like, you know what, Jake, you don't have to remind me about that. For a split second, Jake looked embarrassed. Sorry. Mm. It's okay to do. It gets <laughs> yeah. to us all.
2: Yeah. 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 Marco. Yeah. How nice for Marco. Yeah.
1: Anyway, it's like, it's so good. This OT3 mission is amazing. And <laughs> I don't have a lot of hope for the, the, the three-way relationship. But
0: <laughs> I don't even have a lot of hope for Jake and Cassie's relationship.
1: I guess before we talk about the ending, I want to talk about just like a couple earlier moments with Jake. One is Jake is very much Harry Potter in... Order of the Phoenix oh gosh, in this yes. book where he's like, he's, fu- yeah. he's,
2: angst. he's angst.
1: been a very mature person, but now he is having very realistic teen angst. And it's like, yeah. it's such a bad look. You do not love to see it.
0: You do
1: not. Yeah. But it's like, it's like, it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. Like I understand where he's coming from. He's like, oh, you made me the leader, but I didn't ever want to be the leader. But like, no one listens to me anyway. Right. Like <laughs> it's like really whiny and like and angsty and stuff. And Cassie uses her like emotional manipulation superpower on him and basically primes him for his return, right? Mm-hmm. She's like she's like uh look, maybe you are a good leader. That means you have a responsibility to the group. And he's like nah and walks away and she's like <laughs> you are a coward. Uh-huh. And that doesn't stop him from walking away, but that <sighs> must sink into him to the point where he he is ready to lead again, right? Mm-hmm. So like Cassie totally turns him around. And then he still almost loses it because Cassie's dad Mm -hmm. comes to him at this moment where he's trying to be a big tough leader and like basically hugs him and says I know this must be hard on you son you can be part of our family now (laughs) and Cassie is like I get what you're doing dad but if Jake cries now we're lost right that's like the center cannot hold moments right and Jake finds it within himself to emerge from that stronger Mm -hmm. And when we see Cassie's dad talk to Jake later, where he he overhears like, I can't believe you're recruiting disabled kids to do this. Like, you know, this is wrong. I can't let you do this. And Jake is like, whatever, I'm the leader and walks away. Right. Like (laughs) that that moment, that like found father connection doesn't carry on. Right. He he, he, he refused. He refused it. Right. Like he's he's going to go off and be this independent kid. And it's so sad. It's like so incredibly sad.
2: It was so sad, this moment. At, at first, I was like, Wait, why can't he cry? Like, is that such also a toxic masculinity thing of like, you know, boys can't cry, like showing emotion is like weakens you. And I think it was more playing a role of if he accepts this role as a child in this family, like it would be better for him in, in a lot of ways. But like it would mean saying no to this sort of leadership role. And it's so, like you were saying, Ted, it's so sad. it's definitely emotionally dysfunctional in some ways. And you said mm-hmm. he emerges stronger from it. He does kind of get it together, but like stronger, but maybe more brittle. I don't mm. know. Cause right after that, mm-hmm. he makes the terrible decision about like, we're going to land at this bike shop and steal some bikes and like refuses to listen to yeah. arguments. I
1: don't mean stronger in a morally good way. I just, <laughs> I just mean, I just yeah. mean more strong willed.
2: Yeah. I yes. mean, I guess, I guess so. I think it,
3: Maybe he emerges more strong-willed, but I think it is more about, like, the whole ecosystem of, like, mm-hmm. everybody is extremely fragile, and so just, like, mm-hmm. one little thing could set it all off, and that's very realistic to me, like...
1: It's sort of like Marco diffusing it earlier. Jake stalks off, and Marco's like, no, 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 it's cool, but if Jake cries and runs away at this moment when they've all rallied together,
4: mm. that's
1: when Naomi's going to leave again. Cassie's oh, yeah. parents are going to try and lead, right? Like, there's going <laughs> to, like, you're going to get into warring factions, right? So, like, I think, I think you're totally right, Claire.
2: And yet I think there's also a vision of this in which, and like, it's probably unrealistic. And like, at this point, they're all very damaged. And part of the tragedy is this this can't happen. But like, where Jake starts to cry, and they all start to cry, and it's healing, and it brings them all closer together. And they can see sort of the tragedy of this war yeah. together and can work through it. But like, I I think that would involve <laughs> the kids becoming kids again in a way that's not. Right. I, I, can, I can see war. what you're I talking about.
3: But I think that it's incompatible with the vision of Jake
0: continuing
3: to be the leader
0: of
2: this whole yeah, camp. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I just really want them to be able to have that moment of like non-toxic masculinity. Like (laughs) it is okay to express his emotions in a healthy way because right now he's just bottling them up and they're leaking out in really unhealthy and unhelpful ways that are pushing people away unnecessarily. And I want him to have that moment of like, this sucks. And I want, and like, I want to cry about it. And then now we can- To be on. clear, I, I totally agree with you that like, I, I want that so much for Jake and for all of them. I don't just, mean like, that happen.
3: it's not possible for him to be a leader if he shows vulnerability and shares in vulnerability with the rest of the group. But I think that just from a realistic perspective of the adults giving him permission yeah. to be their leader.
1: Yeah,
0: it's because of the adult kid dynamic.
1: It
3: know.
0: really is. Yeah, I know you're totally right. I,
1: I think we should return to this as the series continues and not maybe not get into it now, but like the Animorphs is not exploring how to be an emotionally healthy warrior. Mm. But I I really, I feel like that is a pretty realistic statement about what war is. And so I'm interested in the idea of like, what kind of army could you have where Jake doesn't get traumatized? I don't know if it's possible. Right. Like Like, we were
2: doing okay at like patching things over. Like I remember at the end of book 16, uh, the one with Joe Bob Fenestre, where, like, Cassie and Jake had this huge fight. And then he goes over and they all, like, shovel manure together. And he's like, and we were us for now. And that's the last line of the book. And you can just see how, like, all of that stuff at this point has accumulated and they aren't them anymore. Yeah,
3: I think it's really interesting that you bring that thing about and we were us because there are so many points in here where Cassie is saying, like, Jake is not Jake or Jake was not Jake anymore. Mm, And she mm -hmm. says, like, I am not the person I was. Mm. So, I mean, just, like, questions of...
2: Yeah. And identity.
3: Identity and, like, wholeness and stuff, which is actually kind of interesting in the context oh. of a book that talks about disability a lot. Although she doesn't make that <laughs> oh, connection. Wow. Yeah. What does it mean to be, like...
1: Oh, gosh. Because, right, this is... Yeah. New Jake is... New Jake is wrong Jake.
2: Yeah. Right? <laughs> she wants him
1: to return to some kind of, like, cured, healthy Jake that she knew before. Jake.
2: So Jake has this line in this campfire scene. The first thing he says, like, I think Naomi or someone is like, what do they want from us? And Jake says, but
1: it's um, Walter is like, oh. surely they can be reasoned with. Oh, yeah, what yeah, do yeah they that's want? right.
2: And Jake says, our souls. And that's such foreshadowing for what you were talking about, Clara. It's like the end of the book, which yeah. like Cassie at least thinks that his soul is at stake. She doesn't say that specifically, but like, you're right that that's implied. Should we talk about it? Should we talk about the ending?
1: Yeah, we can get into it. <laughs> Sure. Another hour later, we're still talking <laughs> about it. I think I want to get I want to get takes from the people who hadn't read it before, because I have I have a, a lot of feelings, some of which are new and some of which are old.
0: What a terrible way to break up with somebody! <laughs>
2: <laughs> By keeping them from killing their brother.
0: I mean, it's not even it's not even that actually. No. Uh, it's Jake's reaction to her doing that. Mm-hmm. So Cassie stops him from killing Tom or attacking Tom or. It's we're going to call the gonna...
2: word killing into question.
0: Yeah. It's but, not yeah. clear to me that he was going to kill him, but whatever.
2: Because you um, know what a tiger can probably do to a human being without killing that human being? Take a out. box out of its hand.
1: Okay. I would just propose that we separate a couple of things. There, <laughs> There is the like...
2: The logistical integrity of the scene.
1: Okay. We can talk. About, I wasn't going to say that. I think there's Cassie choosing to stop Jake and Cassie mm-hmm. choosing to let Tom go are actually two separate choices.
4: Yes. You're right. Yes. Those right. Yes. Right. are
1: so I think I think we could argue about whether or not Jake would have killed Tom, but that's different from other ways they could have gotten the cube back. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's I think Jake would have killed Tom.
3: I'm glad you you separated those two things out, Ted, because I think part of my like confusion with the ending was that I was very much, if not on board with, like I really understood Cassie's decision to prevent Jake from killing Tom, assuming that is what he was going to do. Like, I I really, I do get that. But I was much more confused about her decision to not get the cube or to stop Tom in any way. And that, to me, seemed just, yeah, like a a head scratcher. (laughs) I just didn't really, like, get that. And so I think the fact that, like, they weren't, exactly separated in how she was thinking about it was confusing to
2: me as well. It occurred to me after the fact, because I read that scene and I remembered it very, I remembered that it happened. It was one of the very few things I remembered about the ending stretch, but I didn't remember how. And I got there and I was like, wait, but why? And it occurred to me several hours later, like, oh, she didn't want the anamorphs to have the cue anymore because she didn't want to make new anamorphs. That must have been, she never says that in the ending. Like she has all these moral qualms with like, oh, we shouldn't be like going after these kids. We shouldn't be, you know, putting them in this danger. She doesn't bring that up at the ending at all, but she has this sort of unexplained, like, just like, I knew it was the right thing. And I think part of it, she's such an intuitive moral agent. And I think part of it must have been she didn't want to keep doing what they were doing. She didn't want to go to like another school for like, I don't know, the deaf or something and like, recruit more people. Even though the text doesn't call that out. I feel like it must be part of it. Like she deliberately mm-hmm. gave up the cube. But yeah, like, had Cassie, had you could have just destroyed the That's cube. That's really
3: interesting. And I can't believe I hadn't actually thought about that. But I I think you're very right. And I think it's I wouldn't say it's necessarily like, it's the morally right thing to not make more animorphs, but like almost just like, being excused from having to make that choice also, right? Yeah. Taking out the possibility of being forced to grapple with whether, if you have the cube, do you have an obligation even to like make more animorphs mm-hmm. or do you have an obligation to not, Because you have to protect people? Like I think these are all questions that were raised for her, but that she didn't necessarily settle on one answer for.
2: It's interesting that she called Jake a coward earlier in the book I think that choosing not to have the cube, if that was part of the reason why she made the choice, I think that's very morally cowardly. I agree. Because like, maybe she doesn't trust the rest of the group to side with her on it, which is reasonable, but like not having to grapple anymore with what do we do with this responsibility, understandable they've had a lot of responsibility but well I, yeah
3: and I think what I was saying about choosing not to have to make the choice and what you were saying about it is an act of choice are two very different things and I'm not sure which is the correct interpretation of what she does to be fair wait go on well no I, I interpreted what you were saying first as she's making the choice that it's morally wrong to Oh, the cube there are two ways you or at least two ways you could read it right of like she decides like it would be wrong to force people oh. into this fight in this way or force more people with disabilities or people in general and therefore mm-hmm. we're getting rid of the cube or she's like ah i can't figure out what the right thing is like it's too hard let's, let's just
2: abdicate the responsibility yeah the cube.
3: those are very different things and i'm not totally sure which of either is the correct read
4: hmm.
1: did you have thoughts about her getting rid of the cube or letting the cube go gray
0: um i have I have um one thought about it, which is that I guess this isn't actually about Cassie letting the cube go. I'm I'm not sure how much of it is her abdicating responsibility versus her like intuitive sense that Tom is, I think, going to like come around to their side somehow or they're gonna be able to mm. save him and he'll like mm-hmm. help them somehow in the future, which is how I read her perspective
2: there. Oh, interesting.
0: And I don't know what's gonna happen, but that was my hopeful
3: take on this. So I I guess I think it's interesting what you're saying about her possible intuition about what may or may not be happening with Tom. And I am kind of curious to see how that plays out. And like, I, I don't know if there's much justification for whatever she's thinking either way. And But I guess part of why I had a problem with her decision not to go after Tom is because regardless of what you think about the Animorphs not using the cube and what the right decision is there and her actions perspective there's a whole separate side of it which is tom or the yurks now
2: have the cube yeah
3: which is like it is really hard to justify that in any way it is a
2: terrible decision this is i got to this i was like your choice wasn't kill tom or let him keep the cube your choice was let him keep the cube or don't let him keep the cube i was so mad i was expecting this decision to be framed like the only way to get the cube from Tom is to kill him because of some logistical reason. It was not. She could totally have gotten the cube. Just and take she doesn't. It back. She lets the Yurks have it. I was furious. Yeah, I
3: agree. It doesn't We're make like, any really sense weird, that she would false do that binary stuff totally. going on here. Just like what is happening.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to think... hear you
2: defend this decision, Ted.
1: Okay, so here's the thing. I feel like I can't because this book does not I think the book does a poor job of differentiating the decision to go after, to to stop Jake and the decision to not go after the cube. And I think it is a cheat on the level of not seeing Rachel's decision at the end of 48 or mm. here, like just like these kind of like abrupt endings that have been happening more and more recently. Like for this book to end on like, I just thought it was the right thing. And to not give us more insight into Cassie's thought process is a big cop out. But I do think that one of the things that I like about the ending is that Cassie makes what is objectively a bad choice, just like she does in 19,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: we don't know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. Imagine and I, if 19 had ended with her I really, with After. Right.
1: I really love Gray's point about like, maybe she just has some other vision of how things might be. Right. So like Cassie's not a stranger to like, what if... What if it's not that bad, right? And like we've we've seen at least once, like everything works out in her favor. And I'm I'm not saying that that's going to happen here or anything, but I think yeah. it's interesting to stop at the point of the decision and say, based on the consequences of this choice, the likely consequences of this choice, Cassie is wrong to do it. When Cassie never really thinks that way, like she's always making choices more intuitively. So like it kind of makes sense that there there might be something that she would latch onto.
0: Yeah, that doesn't make it a good decision. No, <laughs> um, but. I think it's interesting that this is the last Cassie book. Yeah. And I just want to say one quick word about that, which is to say, like, this didn't feel like a Cassie book in some ways to me because Cassie's, as I think I mentioned earlier... Cassie's internal conflicts and debates are not really, there's no real time given to them. It's Mm -hmm. about this action-adventure sequence, it's about Jake, it's about the other characters more than it is about her. And from Cassie books, you know, some of them have been funny, but a lot of them have really been about these kind of big moral and ethical dilemmas. And for her not to take the time to have that conversation with herself feels weird, especially as a last Cassie book. Like, I hadn't thought... I hadn't realized this was the last Cassie book, and
2: I am now disappointed about it. I feel like there's more of a parallel between Cassie and Jake in this book than Cassie acknowledges. Like, I think... I can't come up with concrete examples, but I think we've seen in the past Cassie worrying about... Or... Cassie feeling like there's a problem with someone else and not recognizing that problem in herself. Mm. Like this, the end of this book, like there's all this stuff in this book about, oh, Jake isn't himself anymore. He's not making the good decisions he used to be. He's sort of like this like shadow version of himself. And Cassie is making a decision on par with the one she makes in 19 to let Aftran into her head. And in 19, she had had all this time with Aftran. She had reason to think there was hope she didn't spend any time with Tom in this book. She doesn't have like concrete reason to think that there's hope that he will not give the cube to the other year. She just makes this decision. And I think it's a bad decision in a Cassie way, the way some of Jake's decisions were bad decisions in Jake ways. Mm.
1: So the thing that is really frustrating to me on a reread is that I actually do think that there is stuff in the text that, whether it's foreshadowing or not sort of justifies Cassie's decision. But the fact that she never talks about it in mm. this book means that it's like, it's only on a reread that you could be like, Oh, I like this flushes out how maybe how what Cassie was thinking. I don't really, more. well, I don't really want to say more just because oh, okay. it seems like it's an intentional choice to get to see Cassie's decision from a different perspective again later. But mm. like, Hmm. I feel like this book would be so much stronger if we got a, a little bit more of her, like where her in- intuition is coming from. Because I do, mm-hmm. I do see it, I do see it in the text, but I, it's hard for me to say any more about it without tipping a hand that the books kind of don't want to yet, right? Okay. Like, it's, hmm. um,
2: <laughs> Grace putting on her prediction crown.
1: I just, it is a very, yeah, choosing to frame Cassie's thoughts as I just had a gut feeling instead of allowing her to say, you know what, maybe this would be good because then we don't have to decide or because Tom might come around or because XYZ. Mm -hmm. I think that does a real disservice to Cassie because I feel like there's an alternate read that it was kind of my takeaway cut returning to this moment and the fact that it's not in the text at all and must be something I'm remembering from later is very frustrating so like Hmm. I don't really want to say anymore because we should talk about it when it happens later I'm looking
3: forward to hearing more about this later on the podcast but I do want to endorse Jenny what you're saying about Cassie noticing issues in other people like Jake and not noticing Mm. them in herself I do think it's interesting Mm. that the two of them kind of have opposite reactions or at least seemingly opposite reactions and that Jake has at least initially a total crisis of confidence feeling like I made the wrong calls about you know when to get my family out and stuff like that I like I don't want to be the leader anymore I can't make these calls for other people whereas Cassie has sort of gone in the other direction of like my god is right like I guess I'll just go with these decisions that I feel like making you know Mm -hmm. without questioning as much and I think those are both like possible reactions to the Mm -hmm. extreme stress and difficulty of decision-making in these contexts.
1: And is this choice worse than Marco's choice in 45? Yes. Why?
2: Yeah. Because he had strong reason. I mean, he knew his dad wasn't a controller, and we know that Tom is a controller.
1: I just mean, in terms of (laughs) the likely consequence of what Marco did in 45 is all the Animorphs get killed.
2: How is that the likely consequence of what Marco did in 45? Do you mean like going after his dad or telling his dad?
1: Uh, Telling his dad, saving his dad in that moment, knowing that the Andalite bandits are saving this one guy because it does end with Marco being outed. And it's only by a lucky coincidence that none of them get captured and they don't connect the dots between Marco and anyone else, right?
0: maybe but also the definite consequence of Tom having the morphing cube is exactly
1: that it's
2: a your much worse controllers
0: decision. have the ability to morph and one of the things that we've seen consistently throughout the series is how difficult it is to fight morph capable yeah. people and now the Yerks are morph capable so now it's not just the controllers yeah. who are going to be like random bird Eat my phone and shoot. It's going to have to be the animorphs doing that, too.
2: Yeah. Marco's decision was risky. This decision is terrible. This decision, there's there's no good outcome. It was a sacrifice. She's talking about, like, oh, I would stop him. This is my sacrifice. You're sacrificing the box. You're sacrificing the safety of everyone. Yeah. You're not sacrificing your own standing with Jake. Like, that is the smallest thing on the table here. It's
0: also... It goes a little bit back to what Claire was talking about earlier with the kind of paternalism too. It's like Cassie mm-hmm. made this decision on behalf of the on behalf of the group, and it was a yeah. bad decision. Yeah, and her her lack of thinking about that is and like oh I'm sure I did the right thing, is like really nonsensical and and yeah. hurtful and like just dumb. I also want to throw in here. I don't know.
1: So. Axe almost dropped a nuclear bomb on their city, right? Like, I'm. I feel like. I feel like just because we don't know the consequences and whether they're good or bad, it's like it's. I feel like it's so easy to forgive Marco and Axe for their betrayals that we know worked out. Whereas, like, you know, I, 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 I I'm not discounting the fact that <laughs> Cassie should have tried harder, right? Like, I do wish mm-hmm. that the narrative was like made it a little bit less arbitrary that she's like, nah, I'll just let him take the cube, right? Yeah. Like. That, that makes her look like a fool. Right. But I just think that the Animorphs have made a lot of selfish and reckless decisions. I, I don't think this is a uniquely Cassie thing. I think that no, but- the narrative does let them get away with bad choices a lot. And this is one yeah, case when they're like, guess what, Cassie? Bad choice. Right? Like,
2: So I feel like with the Axe decision, it was like nuclear war for the whole world versus. I mean, it was like kind of weird. It was like a wacky plot. But in this case, it's. There's no downside to stopping Tom. Like it is a bad decision on a level we haven't seen before.
1: The it- animorphs all decide not to fight back because they want to protect a room full of blind kids. That's commendable because they're like want to be they don't want to get innocent I lives at stake, really but fight they fight should... back cuz
2: they like weren't in morph and there were Drakon beams at their heads.
1: No, they say, they say that it's because they don't want innocence. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe yeah, maybe yeah. it's just overwhelming. but they've gotten out of situations like that before, right?
2: Yeah. But this isn't even like risky. This is definite like, this isn't a risk, oh, maybe Tom will get the box. Tom has the box. They're not doing anything to stop that. There is no question. It's not even a risk like with Aftrin, where maybe she'll come around. Like, maybe Tom will come around, but we don't have any reason to think that.
1: Well, right? okay. So here's one, like, this is, the, I really like Grace's theory here, right? So Cassie sees Yurk Tom run away instead of immediately handing the Morphin Cube over to Visser One, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, at least that's, like, that's, yeah, like, something... Yeah, you know what she could
2: have done? She could have gone after Tom... And like, like, all right, you're doomed with the Yirks. Like, you might as well make a deal with us or something. She didn't do that. She just let yeah, him go. Yeah,
1: I agree. I agree. I would that's, also. That's totally point, true. So
2: this is an insight that my friend John, uh, who
0: has been a host, oh, yeah, previ- a guest host previously, he mentioned to me that. Um, this doesn't just change their tactics. It changes the entire strategy for the war because one of the only... Not just their war, but every war in the universe. Because mm. one of the only advantages the Andalites had over the Yerks was their morphing ability, this technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now the Yerks have it. And it's not just, you know, Tom has it. It is the Yerkes. Every Yerk in the universe could now get the ability to morph. Yeah. They don't need controllers anymore. Like, there's there's a whole lot that this changes if the Yerks acquire morphing technology. And it seems Castle like... Cassie doesn't even think about that. A terrible idea. Also, just speaking of John real fast, he got really frustrated with her like lack of thinking things through and her paternalism. And um, he, he described it as her two-bit, elemist, wannabe mentality. <gasps> and I laughed so yes! hard. Yes!
4: It so is hard. true.
1: That, that is true. Yes.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Two-bit, elemist, wannabe.
3: Yeah, she is very paternalistic. And I think her manipulative tendencies, which were brought up earlier, are absolutely part of that, as we talked about. Like, that is absolutely an acting out of, like, I know what's better, and I'm going to get you to that point.
1: Right. And she's making the argument that Jake is the best leader they have, but she just wants her boyfriend back, right? Like, it's actually, there's a very selfish way to read it as well. She's going to manipulate him into assuming this role that he doesn't want, instead of being like, wow, maybe Jake really needs help and I should <laughs> yeah. try and make Rachel the leader or something. Or right. Marco. She's yes, like, Marco. I just want you to go back to Marco's normal. Marco has been
2: great, yeah. He did fine. She has this okay. whole thing the center cannot hold where like, she doesn't really bring it up again at the end, but like, okay, maybe she's like, well, the war will be better with Jake than with the Yorks not having morphing power. But she doesn't think that through and I don't think that's really true. Like, Yeah, yeah. Do we want to talk about the first half of Cassie's decision? Like her stopping Jake from killing Tom. We didn't really. I think it's a little bit like the thing in 30 when Jake stops Marco from having to be the one to push his mom off a cliff. It would have been completely appropriate for her to stop Jake and then go after Tom herself, I think. I agree. Jake could still
0: look at
3: himself in the mirror and then, but no. Yeah. Paternalism aside, I actually understand and feel like perhaps her decision to stop him from killing Tom is is justified, especially given what a bad Mm -hmm. place Jake is in. Generally, yeah, I totally right. agree.
1: I, I just wanted just to point out, that. yeah, this is Jake's dream, uh, from the capture coming mm, true. Oh my god, where gosh. he hunts yes. Tom as a tiger in the woods, uh, and is you know forced to choose. It's like it's me or him, me or him. So
2: he chooses, yeah. I'm just, I'm just so mad.
1: I, I think. <laughs> The thing that jumps out to me about that decision is that the reason I think that Jake is going to kill Tom is because I feel like he has really written him off. He doesn't, he doesn't see that happy ending anymore. He's in that fatalistic place. And I I think that he wouldn't be able to. He would take the easy way out instead of like, oh, I'll just tie up my brother for three days. You know, like, I, 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 I don't really know. Yeah, it's it's, it's like kind of like can not just, rational. You like, just tell yourself but... you don't
2: care anymore and then you can stop trying because you've been disappointed so many times. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that you're right. And I, I'm i glad Cassie stopped him. I'm just, what the heck was the second half of that decision, Cassie. That was nonsense. And I guess one more thing
3: about Cassie stopping him related to the Jake externalizing his conscience onto Cassie that Ted brought up before. I feel a little bit more like, I mean, he was doing that kind of all along without really getting her permission for, you know, treating her that way and stuff. And so I think in some ways, like, I don't blame her as much for kind of taking that on. Because I think it was a little bit put on her. And so she has taken on that role. And so I don't feel as bad about her, like, choosing to make these decisions. Because, like, she's been a little bit forced to be the person to make those decisions. So it's only reasonable that she might see herself as the one to do that.
1: Hmm. I also think that this is, like in an interesting way and again I, like i i agree that this decision makes makes cassie look really foolish but both for jake and for the rest of the group like she's taking the responsibility onto herself right mm-hmm. so it's like
2: yeah it's like what rachel did in 22 but for a cassie type thing instead of uh, right you know right right right
1: mm-hmm. so the jake versus tom thing i really loved when the anamorphs get captured and cassie has to go fetch the auxiliaries the moment when tom like slaps jake and is like mm. my own host's brother like you have yeah, no that idea was a really good line. so it's like so cathartic to finally have that veil yeah. lifted and for yeah. jake and tom to be able to look at each other that way and i just can so see how messed up jake is throughout this entire book in a way that probably cassie is uniquely positioned to see so it totally makes sense that he's making he's making bad calls. He's very emotionally unstable. Cassie knows him better than almost anyone. I don't think you could say confidently that like Jake having killed Tom would be more somehow more successful at leading the Animorphs, right? Like no,
2: no. Like
1: he's just he's just found a place of some he's found a little scrap of security in his role as leader. Yeah, and having everyone know that he murdered his brother. Would uh disrupt that pretty quickly,
2: you know what I want what I want from the end of this book. I want Cassie to stop Jake, go after Tom, but it turns out there were like three Harpedgier farther into the woods or something, and so she's planning to get the box from Tom, but she gets stopped, he gets away with it, and uh that removes the stupidity of her decision, but because she did make that decision to stop Jake, they missed their like one chance. that would have been such a better ending. that would have been a, such a more coherent decision from her. I agree.
1: I think the ending would have been she's chase. I I would have liked her to chase Tom, but I think she would have still said, you know, maybe it would be for the best. I think that that's what's going on with Cassie right now. You do think like I she think wants to give up. The I box. think that that's I think that that's the ending that needs to be written for this to be coherent. But I, okay. I, I understand I like.
2: <laughs> I think that needs to be more substantiated though. If she I actually, agree. thinks If she has been failing, I mean, maybe we'll see it later that she actually did think we can't have the box. It's too damaging in certain ways and like i just refuse to think I through guess, the actual consequences of this
1: all i want to say is that i came into this episode planning to stand for cassie and i am not willing <laughs> to advocate for rewriting the ending that way because i think that i think that given given the series you have to face the fact that cassie made this really bad decision i don't think we can take it completely this decision away from her
2: it doesn't even make any sense yeah
1: i agree no, i agree
2: it feels to me and this is you know sort of the Doyleist perspective it feels to me like all right, how can we have Cassie be responsible for the Yorks getting the morphing power? But they didn't actually substantiate half the decision. They didn't actually make it believable that she would choose to let the box go because she wasn't being forced by circumstances to choose between the box and anything else really yeah i i think it's that... not
1: justified by this book for sure
2: okay so maybe we just need to wait and see what happens in future books i'm not
1: saying wait and see i'm just saying that i understand why that would be a better ending to this book mm, but
2: okay okay
1: <sighs> rereading it it's like the clues are there but for some reason Cassie doesn't think about it it's really annoying Great. You were saying that it felt like a breakup. Do you want to say more about that?
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah. So Cassie stops Jake from killing Tom or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Jake's reaction is, as a tiger, Jake roared, turned on me, smacked at my head with his paw. The blow sent me sprawling, claws raked, deep gashes in my side. But it was worth it. The pain, everything. I'd done what I had to do. Uh, Tom disappears into the night. They are panting with fatigue. We had nothing to show for this fight except that we were alive to fight another day, and tomorrow Jake could face himself in the mirror. Uh, And then they get back to the Hort-Bajir camp, and Jake refuses to meet her eyes or even talk to her for 12 hours after they've been back. And she stops him and says, She says, Finally, I decided to force the issue with Jake. Jake stared at me, his eyes cold and hard. Well, stop treating me like I'm the enemy, I said. Jake turned and began to stalk away and she grabs his sleeve and he breaks away from her and says, how could you do it? And he, he says exactly what we say, like, why, why did not you go after him? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and she says, you know, I couldn't explain it. I didn't understand it myself. All I knew was that it seemed like the right thing to do and something told me I was still right. So he, his reaction to her stopping him, his immediate reaction is to turn around and just beat the sh** out of her and she's in wolf morph and he's in tiger morph and like obvi- he did whatever he did the battle but like that's not that's not great and then to have this complete lack of communication and understanding between the two of them is this whole that whole last chapter felt like a breakup to me like they they i don't
2: see a way forward for their relationship in any meaningful way, you know what I'm really surprised by. Sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but hearing you describe that, I'm surprised he didn't think she was a controller. Huh? I'm surprised she he didn't insist that she like be locked up for three days because she just.
1: But it's so Cassie. The
2: morphic cube to the year.
1: It's so yeah. Cassie, though. I, I mean, yes, it
2: is so Cassie. <laughs> I expect you to make bad decisions. You made a bad know, decision. A you must so be Cassie. So yeah,
3: not really. <laughs> I expect you to make bad decisions, but like I think it is a little bit like I expect you to like think you know what's right and do things that implicate other mm-hmm. people in ways that are potentially really dangerous and think you know what's right and go around like what you've kind of promised to do in like treating me as a leader and I think that is a huge part of why this seems like the death knell for their relationship is it's just like to him it's like a huge blow of Cassie just not respecting his decision making for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I said and, paternalism yeah. is such an important thing in this book. Yeah, 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 absolutely
0: true.
1: This is also a really sad epilogue to the moment in 43 where they talk about, I think it's the morality of blowing up the York pool and mm. Cassie doesn't agree with them doing it and like steps out of the mission, but she's like, but I trust you, Jake. I trust that in the moment you will do uh-huh. the right thing. And here we see her revoking that. Yeah. yeah,
2: absolutely. Was it that book that had the the bit about like, Jake's like, well, what is evil? It's like trusting that like, you're not going to be fundamentally changed or something. Yeah. And she thinks this action would make him unable to look at himself in the mirror. But I think
1: she's being naive about the fact, like Jake, there's no going back for yeah, Like yeah, he's yeah. he's yeah. lost. The thing he was fighting for was his parents and Tom in their house together again. And when yeah. his parents get infested, I think that's, that dream is yeah. taken. yeah. I do have I do have one more like topic and then we don't really have to go through little things unless there yeah, are like stuff that people think really there's love. Yeah. huge? I ship Marco with Colette.
2: <laughs> yeah. New new
1: pairing for Marco. <laughs> ship him with everyone. Yep, yep. Um that wasn't it. So <laughs> I do want to talk about the ways the war is escalating. Uh, I think this this sort of like is going back to that like we're kind of breaking the format for the series mm. in an intriguing way but in a way that doesn't quite work, right? So okay. In the the fireside scene um jake talks about how okay you can't negotiate with viscer one as long as he's in charge this is going to be an all-out war right maybe there are other viscers maybe the Yurks with different leaders right but like mm-hmm. we there's no there's no way to negotiate we have to like fight them but in the books they've negotiated with viscer one a lot about like how annoying the helmicrons <laughs> are true. and about skunk, skunk smell and like other things right so it's really interesting to me and Visser 1 does make an appearance and he and Jake have this like fun banter and stuff at the end. And, and Visser 1 gets the better of Jake and it's only because there's a, there's a renegade Hork-Bajir who breaks ranks and saves Jake's life that they're able to get away, right? That's all like very exciting. But for the most part, since 45, the larger than life personality of Visser 1 has been replaced by oh. the Yurk army like in total. Oh, and I feel like, I feel like yeah. the war escalating has made it much more of a story about, like, armies and less of a story about generals in a oh. really interesting way.
2: Despite but, this being so much about Jake. Yeah. Right.
1: But it, it loses some of that, like, fun. And because we know Visser 1's personality is, like, so over the top and ridiculous, it's weird that mm. they're taking a step back. And, like, they talk a lot about, like, how things have changed The Chi are less useful to them now because Yorks have better security. They can't talk to the peace movement because they're not at school, so they can't reach Mr. Tidwell. Like, that's all really interesting Mm -hmm. stuff. But again, with the need to, like, now the war has changed, we're going to have multiple teams of Animorphs, we're going to have this other stuff. Like, it really is addressing the like scale of the fight in a new way that's mm. like it is a little arbitrary that they're doing it now rather than at, at another time but it's interesting yeah. to see it kind of i guess it's another way it's spiraling out
2: i wonder if the yurks are maybe getting better at surveillance also because i think one question the book didn't answer just like a logistical question is how did the yurks know they were going to be at that school for the blind
4: yeah they Good didn't question
2: if the yurks guessed that maybe they're going to be targeting recruits who have like some sort of physical disability, then get those auxiliary animorphs out of their home because they're gonna be targeted soon. Or is there a possibility that one of the auxiliary animorphs actually is a controller and is
0: undercover still? No, Cassie's a controller. We already.
2: (laughs) This book is a really unreliable narrator. This is great. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like possibly it's just like a plot hole. They didn't explain how the Yorks guessed that or whatever. But like possibly there's some unaddressed security risk there. Also.
0: What ha- just decide uh, what happened to the girl that they woke up and they t- and then she just walks out in Rachel morph and then disappears from yeah, the narrative. I feel like we have like, to put yes. this did in our go? prediction. Ray. I was I was like ready for that. <laughs> Excellent, nice, ridiculous.
2: All right, we had like one Nick at Night reference. I don't think there was any other like we learned some parents' were... names.
0: That was cool. Yeah, I... we got the parents' names. Who cares at this point? <laughs>
1: It's been so hard not to call uh, Marco's dad Peter <laughs> for this entire podcast. I'm so glad we know.
0: At one point, she so she says, uh, "Braveheart, the Patriot, Gladiator, was, <laughs>
2: yes. dying for
0: the cause." Like list of movies. Um, there was also a. Uh, I was I was delighted to see. There's a 2020s reference. Go on. Jake uh, is telling them. Jake is telling them what his uh, his feelings are about what's going on, and, and uh, he describes it as a TikTok.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow, they really, yeah, they're uh,
0: just foreseeing so much. I love it, I love it. <laughs> I don't have time for this TikTok, he says. We need ideas.
2: <laughs> Marco's like, no, this was going to be a video party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So is there anything else we want to say about this book? Should we move on to predicting 51? I have one
1: more random thing, which is okay. just that Jake has this great line where he's like, if I could do it all over again... And as we know from Megamorphs Four, he would have—he would still he would have give it all that, up. Yeah. He would still give it all up. Yeah. He doesn't know Good that point. that would have led to other bad things. <laughs> oh, also, I want to talk about Marco whittling.
2: <laughs> God, that Weirdly out of character, so Spacey
1: dangerous. Marco, or is he messing with and/or flirting with Cassie?
0: Ooh, I like it. <laughs> all right, I just read it as spaced out, but
2: yeah, no, it was—it was just really bizarre.
0: I, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs>
2: It might be him, like, coping better than Jake. Yeah, I, I thought it was just coping with, like, oh, here we are in this new situation.
3: Like, I have both my parents. I'm living in the country with a bunch of horrid gear. I guess this is what I'm doing mm-hmm. now. Which I, like, really related to as sort of, like, different ways that people are adapting to, like, social distancing and stuff like that. Like,
0: I also mm-hmm. really love how he figured out, how he, like, realized that he was just spacing out was he says to her, yep. I reckon you're right. <laughs> and she's like,
2: what? And he goes, oh my god, did I really say that? And like freaks out and throws the wood away. That was so weird. Holy
1: That's weird. why I think he was messing with her. But, yeah,
2: maybe. Um, yeah. It's it's good
1: however you read it.
0: Yeah. Marco in this, so good. Cassie, not great. Axe, terrible. Ooh, yeah, no.
1: I mean, talking so about bad. like, the problem is like Tobias and Axe don't really feature in this at all. And Rachel's like very minor. To your point about involving new characters, right? Yeah.
2: I did. We got some like Tobias and human morph, like hanging out with his mom. So clearly, that's you know happening.
0: Yeah, there was one w- moment where they say Rachel is jealous because someone else gets a grizzly morph. Which shut up! No, she's not.
2: No, she's jealous that Tobias is willing to be human <gasps> for his mom, but not for
1: new his mom. animals. Wait, okay. So <laughs> oh, yeah. Jenny, I know that oh, you God. hate having new characters, but new <laughs> yeah. animals is so much fun. Even yeah, though it doesn't make I sense agree. that they're not all polar <laughs> bears <laughs> or whatever. Why, but, Why did but,
2: they no, get a polar morph?
0: Why? Why did they get a walrus morph? What? What useful situation did you foresee that was going to require? Well, there was a, a time they went morph.
2: to the North Pole. Unbelievable.
1: <laughs> I feel like a like a bull and a bobcat are also not great morphs, but I love it. Crocodile, I, I also like to see again. Mm, um, the the bull
0: was really was very useful. Yeah, yeah, the crocodile is
3: great. Um,
1: so cool. I love. I love that there are more animals now. You know, yeah.
3: One thing yeah. we didn't talk about, and I realize we don't have time to talk about it now, was their writing off of the horfjir as potential morphers. But yeah. that was upsetting.
2: Agreed. There was a lot of condescension towards horfjirs. However,
1: Vajir. Toby is back in rare form after wearing the, the <laughs> silly in. hat. You're all dead. The silly hat in book forty seven. I was happy to see competent Toby again.
2: Yeah. Although yeah. at some point they're like, "Yeah, I guess we should tell Toby about all these new animorphs we made." I'm like. You're not including Toby, like at least give Toby the power to morph. She's awesome. Exactly. I guess she has this different role. But when Claire was talking about the paternalism,
0: one thing that we didn't talk too much about was the paternalism towards the hork-pajir and yeah. it made me so angry because at the beginning they say something like Toby is helping them run these war games, and they say like Toby is different. She's done a good job of leading her people. You shut up right now. You shut your face. She's the smartest six month old on the planet she is doing an amazing job don't (laughs) do not patronize toby and like tell her what's going on she has better ideas then the rest of There's you There's really like, no combined. reason for her not to just be and like the Except group for that one time when she didn't want to leave the valley. But other and than that, that
1: was a stupid I, book. I feel like I feel like it was underexplored, but I did like the parallel between Cassie's mom and like Aldrea's mom and how they react to the mm. Hork-Bajir as kind of mm. like oh well they're just like animals. Mm-hmm. Right. Like and then that helps Cassie realize, oh I'm being patronizing towards yeah. the disabled kids later.
2: Yeah. I do feel like they, they decided not to give the Hork-Bajir morphing power because they thought they wouldn't be able to control the animals, which is completely stupid. But the thing where they're like, oh, no, everyone won't be able to evacuate the valley quickly enough. I was like, give them all morphing power, even if they aren't fighting, they can like morph insects or birds or whatever. And then I realized that Naomi was really a loose cannon. I was like, okay, you can't really give her morphing power. She'll just like sneak off and tell the FBI or whatever. But like, they could maybe have talked about giving morphing power to like... Cassie's parents, so they could escape the hork bajira so that they can escape, even if they already have fighting. Right, warps I think. Or fighting I bodies. think
3: part of it is just like this continued viewing of morphing as a weapon, specifically, right? as opposed to like morphing for all sorts That's of really other purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even
2: though That's they've really used it for lots of purposes. Yeah. All right. Should we? Should we produce some predicting? Let's do it. The
1: inside, the inside cover the is book safe. where Marco
2: drinks a lot of vodka. Okay. Absolute Marco.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hate the covers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's some new stuff on the cover this time
0: there is uh this is a uh, book 51 it's a marco book uh, not only do we have the little cut text that says the countdown has begun four dots uh, but there's an additional little text above the animorphs name on the very top that says it's countdown time only
2: three more books until the end not counting this one not counting I assume. this one yeah, yeah. Wait, great. Okay. You don't like the cover? You don't like how Marco does the robot so hard he turns into a duck?
0: <laughs> when you describe it like that. I know, it's great. It's- it's not great. Uh,
2: Marco, who, like, I think this is, is this a new cover model? He looks so young. I think he's different, yeah. They seem to have kept the cover models, like, the original age of the animals, which is weird because, like, definitely Why? some time has passed. They're
3: growing up. Yes. Yeah. Fine. Okay. So, wait, is, is Duck new?
0: Have they done ducks before? Duck is new. <laughs> I think they have. Yeah, I think Yay, it's I'm new.
3: super excited because I
0: love ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad you're here to help me predict this one. Um, I also just want to point out that um, Marco is wearing the same Z zip off cargo pants that turn into cargo shorts when you (laughs) zip off the bottom of the legs that my brother wore. Oh, so good. very funny. Okay. uh, And then the inside is just him and a bunch of ducks flying through the air. So it's useless to me. So I was going to sort of facetiously
3: suggest a Animorphs meets Make Way for Duckling situation where Marco has to like (laughs) escort ducklings across the street, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen. Instead, I think based on this <laughs> Love it. migration thing, I guess the inside cover looks like there's sort of like a migration pattern of ducks. Maybe mm-hmm. Marco has to morph a duck to locate something or to get like, I, I'm trying to think of a reason that he would have to get an aerial perspective in a situation where like Tobias would not be able to do it or they wouldn't be able to do it
0: in mm-hmm. Raptor. Yeah, there are other yeah, but I like the like the migration idea. Like maybe they are trying to get a large group of you know the auxiliary animorphs to another location, and so they have to go together. Yeah, I
3: like that idea a lot. And this is like a safe way to do an actual migration of either auxiliary animorphs, or maybe they do give morphing power to their families because they have to leave the valley or something like that.
0: Well, they can't anymore because they don't have a morphing cube. Oh yeah. so maybe part of it is i i mean i hope that that comes back and maybe part of it is them trying to like recover the morphing cube or recover tom like get tom so that they can i mean get the morphing cube seems like a very good next mission and i sincerely hope that they are at least trying to do that and that cassie doesn't like somehow talk them into like just letting the yorks have it it's fine Well, maybe Tom is running away even
3: more because he was already running away at the end of the book. Mm. So maybe they need to chase him down.
0: That's a great idea. Yeah, maybe they've got to like go long distances. Ducks would be better for that than like hawks, which are good at hovering, but not so much the like distance. Um, so maybe they have to go to like Washington, D.C. because the Yerks are going to infest the White House like they saw in Rachel's dream or something like that. And the Yerks are also moving forward with their mission. And everyone is kind of coming out a little bit more into the open than they have been in the
1: past. Do you want to make any specific predictions in that area or other ways the wars might escalate in this particular installment?
0: Um, I don't know, maybe another military angle. We haven't really closed the loop on the the whole like trying to infest an entire air. What are, in I a year mean, of...
3: what about the andalites? Like, are any andalites going to show up at any point? Mm. I'm wondering when that's going to happen. Not okay. In this book. We'll, we'll say not. In this
1: so book. no andalites. What are the other shoes that are left to drop?
3: This Rachel. We girl. only have
1: four books left.
3: This girl who looks like Rachel. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I I said we would incorporate it into our prediction, but I feel like it's kind of like, I feel like maybe Tom is the immediate priority and this Rachel girl is going to pop up like in two books or something like that.
0: Yeah. Oh, and maybe something about the Yerk resistance movement. Like we know Mm. that it's still around, but we don't know how much of it is. So maybe if they like connect with... Um, Mr. Tidwell then and and, like get some information from him I don't know. It
3: also says the countdown has begun which does kind of remind me of what you were saying about like the military stuff like if there's some sort of countdown to like a missile launch (gasps) or something like that and they have to get there and and stop it or something like that. I like that
0: ridiculous it's so good.
1: So I don't have any other follow-up questions but I did want to share one other thing that changed about the books. So the books have always had this is book 16. On the back, the like description of the, the book, which we never show you the back of the book because it spoils stuff. But at the top, it says, we can't tell you who we are or where we live. It's too risky, and we've got to be careful, really careful, so we don't trust anyone. Because if they find us, well, we just won't let them find us. The thing you should know is that everyone is in really big trouble. Yeah, even you. <gasps> and they change it, starting with this book for the end of the mm-hmm. series. So now it says... Here's the deal these days. They know exactly who we are. They know exactly where we live. We've got a few secrets left, and we're going to use them. But just know that the end is coming, and we don't know how much longer we can do this, how much longer we can fight. What about you? Where will you be when it ends? Think about it. (gasps) Think hard. Because the countdown has already begun.
2: Dun, dun, dun. Where were you guys when Animorphs ended?
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it's just this. I think this was when you realized as a casual reader that the ending is coming.
2: Mm-hmm. Man, that's got to be very exciting. Do you remember that? Like reading that at all? That change? I don't really. Re- I remember noticing the cover, the back cover change. I don't remember the moment and I realized like, oh, it's going to end at 54. But I did want to point out the covers like of the always had like anamorphs with like a color in the background of the logo and starting in 45. So like the beginning of the end, uh, the background of the anamorphs logo was always black. And I think um, something else maybe changed about the cover, like like maybe this, like the Never title text was black or something. That. But there there is like a color scheme shift yeah. to mark that. Change free. I don't
1: particularly remember being because like I was reading these books in isolation. I didn't have I was I was too old for them at this point. Sorry, Jenny. (laughs) I didn't have friends who were talking about them still. I would sometimes Mm -hmm. like lend loan the books to people, but we didn't really talk about them and I wasn't plugged into the online scene Mm -hmm. at all. So like I think I was really hooked and invested on certain characters and like what would happen and stuff, but I don't think that I had like fan expectations Okay. Of it, of it ending a certain way. I think I was just hooked on whatever was going to yeah. happen. I also think that because I was a little older, I was probably like a little less invested and yeah, maybe mean, some, of these, invested some of these some of these later books were starting to like, oh, this is actually getting a little more interesting because the stakes are getting higher again. Like that I think is not I how I, felt. <laughs> I think I was slowly getting getting pulled in.
2: Okay. I'm intrigued. Me too. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens next. I don't remember anything about this this coming book, so yeah, it'll be an adventure. It's a fun one. Next time. Claire, thank you so much for Claire, joining for, us. Thank you all so
3: this much. Was, It was so nice to have you. It was you. so great to be back. And thank you all for doing this podcast. It's been really nice to listen to you over the past however long <laughs> you've been doing it.
0: That you makes us so happy. welcome. We're glad you've been enjoying it. I'm very happy that um we have had such great guests on the podcast like you. Yay.
1: This feels thank like you. a very appropriate episode to finally have one be more than two hours.
2: Oh, oh no. <laughs> If you want to find us, we are at Anamorphology.com and at Anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this
0: podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends.
2: Visser 3 Morphs, and is like almost...
1: Visser 1 Morphs.
2: Visser 1 Morphs. Okay, his name is just Visser 3, okay? Esplan. I Esplan.
1: <laughs> Their name is Esplan.